Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Blossoming with knowledge, I promise I'll be honest, cause tomorrow isn't promised. There's knowledge in my forehead, so I forage in a forest. I need some dandelion root and lots of berries. Big up Yaki and big up Dr. Sebi. Health is wealth and it doesn't cost a penny. The reset is overdue, I hope you are ready. Preparation prevents piss poor performance. Why do you think I bought a castle with a fortress? I bought a sword and it's enormous And I'm not scared to chop your head off Be very cautious This world is full of monsters We're living in monstrous times That's why I'm talking truth and facts And giving them quantum rhymes Don't let the power to be manipulated We're constant lies It's cultural conditioning Programming your subconscious mind I love talking about these complex concepts I love studying these convex objects I bought 20,000 pounds worth of crystals For fuck's sake I think I'm obsessed What's next? I will make a potion with some frog's legs In a cauldron with some bat wings and cobwebs I'm a wizard, cold-blooded like a lizard Doing ice water therapy, naked in the Loch Ness I got very high prospects, I'm searching for their Nostex I didn't find them, but I found my inner peace, I'm not vexed I'm just reading Greek scripts on secrets deep in Egypt I seen the phoenix and it's activated my double helix I'm a realist, yeah I'm in it to kill Don't be a hypochondriac Stop thinking you're ill, I am the goat I write my lyrics with ink and a quill We might be inside the same boat, but I don't care, I'm sinking it still You can fuck off, I'm not asking for forgiveness I'm ghosting everyone and God's my witness Enjoy my presence, it's an early gift for Christmas Cause I've been studying the work of Hermes Trismegistus No, I'm just drinking some hibiscus I figured out the meaning to existence I did it by myself without assistance All you really need is self-belief and some persistence I never ever back down and no one never show no resistance nah. I've had enough of the bullshit though I've had enough of confliction Reality is holographic I'm so sick of the system I'm fighting for my rights And talking truth And giving them wisdom You need to change your diet If you want to change your sickness You need to cleanse your body With some herbal citrus You need to do some yoga And stretching for your stiffness I advise you utilise Some hiking for your fitness I'll make you swallow all your vomit Don't be horrible and horrid Just open up your mind It should be blossoming with knowledge I promise I'll be honest Cause tomorrow isn't promised There's knowledge in my so I forage in the forest. Yeah, yeah. I need some dandelion roots and lots of berries. Big up Yaki, big up Dr. Sebi. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this very special Swapcast episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast meets the Philosophical Minds podcast. With my friend Skylar Mathis, who was on the show as a guest a few months back. And he decided to invite me on to introduce me to a friend of his named Ike Baker. So 
We all had a discussion. It was fantastic. And I decided this would be an unconventional Wednesday, my family thinks I'm crazy, episode where I do what I normally do in the outro in the intro because this episode is particularly long. So I hope you enjoyed the um, intro song from Mr. Traumatic. I swapped that one out for this episode. We went with his song, uh, well... I was going to go with Psychedelic Honeycomb, but you know what? I think I'm going to pick a random one. So I don't know as of right now what song you just heard because that's out of order in my process of recording these episodes. Don't make me explain it. Maybe you guys are curious. If you are, go on the Patreon. We're going to be doing bonus episodes there. I was considering making this episode, you know, half and half, but I really shouldn't considering it was a swap cast. But either way... This episode is fantastic. I know you'll enjoy it. We got into all sorts of different rabbit holes. Ike has a very interesting perspective that I was grateful to uh, sort of be there to ask questions and run some of the ideas that I've been stewing on uh, with Skull and Bones. So be prepared for that. But before we get to that, I want to give a big shout out to everybody who's supporting the podcast on Patreon, Rockfin, and Substack. Thank you so much for doing that. Please make sure you renewed your card or sign up if it's uh, lapsed since July, but it is now August, so welcome to the new month. Hopefully we'll be uh, growing the Patreon and reaching that 250 patron goal. At that point, I will be able to do in-person interviews. That is the goal. So 250 patrons, we are 100 away. You listening right now. You may be one of my next 100 patrons. Do it now. Sign up today, get all the bonus episodes, get every episode early, including this one. So thank you to all of you who are already there and listening on Patreon or Substack. For $8, you can get both. Sign up on the Patreon at the $8 tier and I will sign you up for the Substack as well. And I got to give a big shout out to our sponsors, Austin at Olympic Seeds. That's right. For all your weed needs, if you're growing, if you want to show off some of the best buds in the Western Hemisphere, I dare say you need to hit up Austin at Olympic Seeds. That's right. Austin has experience growing in three different unique climates, and now he has the amazing volcanic soils of Hawaii boosting the seeds at Olympic Seeds. So if you want to grow something that's surefire, guaranteed to be a great smoke, cured perfectly, well, that's on you. But it's good stuff. So hit him up, Austin at OlympicSeeds.com. And then, of course, once you have your buds, you're going to need a hit kit to store your joints, your spliffs, your blunts, whatever you're smoking on, the hit kit is the number one way to get lit. Keeps your lighter right there, safe and sound, next to whatever you're smoking on. You don't need to reach into your pocket cross your fingers hoping that your joint or spliff or whatever is crushed or turned into some kind of salad in your pocket mixed in with the lint and all that gross whatever else is in your pocket crumbs who knows what else keep it safe in the hit kit you'll never lose your lighter again you'll never get bicked again get a hit kit today use that promo code crazy at checkout and save 15 percent off and that's all I'll say for now. Enjoy this conversation with Skylar Mathis and Ike Baker. 
All right. Today, joined with Ike Baker and Mark Steves, Ike Baker of Arcanum and Mark Steves of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. This is very exciting for me to talk with both of you. I think it's going to be a good like mixing of the minds as we bridge worlds. So thank you guys both for doing this. It means a lot to me because Mark and Ike, you don't really know each other super well or anything, but Ike and I, we've become pretty good friends actually through podcasting and Mark, you aren't like super close friends or anything, but you've been super supportive of me and having me on the Alt Media United and having me on your podcast and bridging me with Sam and all of that. So super grateful. There's a high level of appreciation and respect I have for both of you. So really stoked. I just always like to give credit where it's due and show my appreciation. So should we kind of each do a little brief introduction about ourselves and Maybe I'll just Sky Philosophical Minds podcast. I'm out here just trying to talk about esoteric subject matters, alchemy, the occult, things along those lines. Maybe, Mark, you can go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners and then we'll go ahead. Yeah, pleasure to be here. As you pointed out, Ike and I just met and Sky, we've done a couple podcasts together, one or two in the past. So pleasure to be here again. And yeah. I'm Mark from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. That's the name of my podcast. It's the name of my website. And it's a true statement that describes my experience for the past 20 years since I've been awake and vocal about my opinions, beliefs, and perspective. I've always had some people have taken umbrage with that. And part of what I bring to my podcast is 10 to 15 years of <laughs> experience arguing with the people closest to me, my friends and family. <laughs> About things like the veracity of aliens or the corruption of the government and whatever else is going on. So yeah, if you're into that, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy is the podcast. And yeah, again, happy to be here. Beautiful. Well, Mark, it's a pleasure to meet you, man. And let me let you know that you are in good company, my friend, because I think we've all experienced that to one degree or another. What's great is that there is so much freedom in being crazy, because we are. But everyone else is just kind of walking around trying to stuff it down and pretend that they're not. So <laughs> um, I'm happy to be here with the both of you. I'm Ike Baker. I, I'm a writer. I'm an occultist. I am an initiate of Freemasonry, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Martinism, and a bunch of other, I have a bunch of other magical merit badges as well. I host the Arcanum YouTube channel where I, I produce content presentation style. And I talk on topics that I specialize in, like the occult, magic, astrology, tarot, all sorts of divination, as well as the Western esoteric traditions. The, that's the broader milieu of the spiritual traditions of the West that came out of the Hellenistic syncretism happening and the, the last few centuries, BC, first few centuries CE in Alexandria, Egypt, and those parts of the Mediterranean. That includes Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, Middle Platonism, Hermeticism, what have you. So you can check that out there. I also have a podcast on that channel as well. I interview lots of cool guests. Not all of them are practitioners. Most of them are. Some of them are researchers, authors. But you can check that out at the Arcanum podcast. Uh, I was foolish enough to typeset Arcanum, A-R-C-A-N-V-M. So, <laughs> but also in recent ventures, Sky and I have started the Etherica podcast, and you can 
get that information. That's on Sky's banner over there. And we're going to be releasing a few of our episodes out to the public on RS, and the rest is on our Patreon that you can contribute to for cost of a cup of coffee a month. You can get hours of rolling content on all this stuff. And it's me and Sky, two friends just going back and forth. It's very casual and it's a deep dive every time. Beautiful. I kind of want to open this up with just asking you both. And I'll start by asking you, Mark, a little bit about just podcasting in general and your whole podcasting experience and journey, like from when you started to where you're at now, because I resonate a lot with you and your whole approach and your style. And I think we obviously have a lot of crossover in our curiosities and our inquiries into the nature of reality and all that stuff. So like, I think it's a good starting place. Like the whole art of podcasting and just really the art of conversing, it has become like increasingly fascinating for me. It's just like for an en endless amount of reasons, it's become one of my favorite things. And I'm curious for yourself, like you interview like the spectrum, like it's beautiful. It's an invaluable thing in terms of like your guests and the people that you have on. You're just immersed in a continuous flood of perspective. And it's really wild because it's a lot to observe, absorb and integrate, I would imagine. But yeah, for one... Well, you know all right, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, for one, I was wondering, like, what are some of the most fulfilling aspects to you yourself personally, like within podcasting? And then one another thing I want to ask you like, is what are some of your current investigations as far as where you've come along? What kind of information or mysteries or things in particular are you interested or driving at or attempting to exhume or explore these days now that you're so far down the line and have interviewed so many different people. Yeah, thank you. It's funny. I try to tackle all sorts of a variety of topics because it's something that I've just always been interested in learning. I remember there's a subject, I forget the name of it. It starts with an O, but it's essentially the study of the world. And I remember when I was a kid, I saw that on some Wikipedia page and I was like, wow, that's a cool ology. I want to be proficient in that ology, right? Of all the ologies, I remember I was interested in zoology. I was interested in archaeology, anthropology. And ever since I was a kid, I've been interested in all sorts of things. So I carried that into the podcast. And ever since I was a kid, I've always felt like the average way of going about life wasn't that fulfilling. I saw people in my family stressed out about work, unhappy with the decisions or seemingly so that they had committed themselves to through one way or another. So from an early age, I just had this kind of rebellious tick to be iconoclastic about my decisions and maybe to a fault because I ended up dropping out of college at some point. But I carried with me this spirit of learning and I was always reading even when I had jobs, my first job, serious job was a delivery guy <laughs> delivering Chinese food. And I would read my books in between orders. And my boss would always call me a dreamer and say like, you need to work harder, Mark. Why are you reading these books about meditation or ancient histories? Like, what's that ever going to get you? And he had a point. He's a Chinese guy, uh, pragmatic as all hell. And he was, uh, he was sort of pushing me in that direction as 
many people in my family of being like, yeah, like put your head down and work. What are you doing? Like with your head in the clouds. So having a podcast that actually became an outlet for all these ideas and discussions and actually even now I can say it's sort of like a career. It's a way I make money and I don't have to do the previous things I did to earn a living or earn my keep. Right. So it's not easy, but that's the fulfilling part is taking things that I'm genuinely interested in, passionate about and making it into something that I can be successful with or make into a career of some sorts. Right. Because there's that pressure still from my family to not be just like a user, like floating around, like using people and just float, couch surfing or whatever. I feel like that's kind of like the slacker lifestyle I appear to be sometimes, maybe to some people, but really I'm just interested in figuring out solutions to so many of these problems that I see when I look at the big questions like, who are we, why are we here, et cetera history and all the gaps that seem to be there. And then all these groups that are in power and contributing to this widening gap between the haves and the have nots. And I think no matter where you stand politically, that's something that should motivate you to change the world for a better place and to have a clearer understanding of it. So we're kind of doing that, I guess here now in a way and with each podcast and each conversation but yeah i just i like to have a multifaceted approach to my podcast but among all of that a few specific topics have become mainstays i guess for me personally and even for the podcast one is ancient architecture specifically in the area that i live in new england not just ancient architecture. I guess that implies buildings that people live in, but these are more stone structures, rather, walls and different ceremonial structures that some people think were built by Celtic or Viking explorers, even Phoenician, Babylonian, some Chinese. And this is all along the East coast of North America, a place where our history books say before Columbus, there are only Native Americans here. But despite that, there's tons of evidence that shows that there might have been other groups of people prior to Columbus leaving evidence of their being here behind for many years to come. And some of these artifacts or stone structures are overlooked, ignored. Some have even been deleted from history or removed from museums and things like that. I can think of a few off the top of my head, but despite that, there are guys like Scott Walter are kind of pushing that forward a little bit on the History Channel. And anytime it reaches that level of entertainment, TV kind of reality show, like they're going to leave some things out, but uh, there's a lot of in interesting information when it comes to the ancient history of America. and. That, in a way, connects to some of the groups I've been researching, like Skull and Bones and, well, the secret society called, it's called the Society of the Cincinnati. Just want to make sure I get that right, because I usually forget the second, the, but I'm from Connecticut, so Skull and Bones at Yale University sort of piqued my interest the most just because 
when I was in college, I was right next door to Yale University. I was at a community college in the same city, literally in the same section of the downtown. So in between classes, I would go explore Yale's campus and look around and just kind of see how the rich and the famous were getting on as I was just at this little community college. And I had some really wild experiences. I mean, maybe now is not the best time to get into all that, but uh, there's like a magic in the city that took me for a ride, so to speak, and different people I met, different jobs I had brought me down this path to where now I have a podcast and it's sort of a synchronicity the way it all took place. I mean, even right down to the podcast I was listening to before I started a podcast, obsessively listening to Tinfoil Hat or the Higher Side Chats or the Grimerica show. And now I can say I've talked to all three of those people. I even work for Sam Tripoli as a booker, right? So there's some sort of whatever it is in the universe pulling me to do these things because I had an organic and authentic interest I've always been pursuing and podcasting, whether I knew it or not, 10 years ago when I got into all this stuff, 15 years ago, I didn't know a podcast would exist, but I've kind of been pulled in this direction. So it's hard for me to take the compliments because it does feel like I'm what I'm doing is just all natural. And I think podcasting to a certain extent should be something that comes naturally to people who communicate well. And I think just through doing it, you'll sharpen your skills at communicating. But but yeah, you know, I was just kind of predisposed to this and I'm really blessed that I found the path to it in the way that I did. But it certainly helped being close with a guy like Sam Tripoli who had already done so much to get himself in the spotlight and have hundreds of thousands of people know who he is and listen to his show. So I don't make any illusions about that helping me and my show grow. But yeah, I think I was kind of prepared before all that for that. I might not have as many episodes as some of the podcasts I mentioned, but I have the caliber guests. And I think that's just because I've been interested in this stuff for so long and nothing's going to stop as far as that curiosity goes. I think that's something the both of you can say for yourselves. It's just curiosity is one of those six senses of life that you could just kind of tap into and it brings you places. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Curiosity also, or curiosity also killed the cat. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Ike, I kind of want to ask you a similar question, but if you had any kind of thoughts or responses to what Mark just laid out there, go ahead and give you space to reply. I'm just really happy to, to be meeting you and to be, I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight. I feel like, I feel like you, you seem like a very open-minded person. So, so that's always a pleasure, right? Especially nowadays. Nowadays, it's very difficult. You're either talking to somebody who agrees with you very happily or disagrees with you violently. So Absolutely. So as far as yourself, Ike, and your, because you more recently started the Arcanum podcast, and I wonder, just from starting out, maybe if you had any thoughts going into it and kind of where your consciousness is at now, or was it what you expected, or did you learned some things along the lines just in terms of conversations and having conversations with different individuals that are bringing you to any more deepening of questions or explorations or anything along those lines. I, I had toyed around with the idea of a podcast, not a podcast, a YouTube channel. 
I wanted, I had been delivering lecture style presentations, educational presentations for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the temple of which I'm now a chief. And, but I had been an educator within that structure for a while before taking on that, that, the further responsibility. <clears throat> so I thought to myself, every time I stick my head in the gigantic cesspool that is the internet, I get my, yeah, I get covered. I pull away with a head full of shit. And I mean, <laughs> it's, that's kind of, that's kind of asking for it, right? Going on the internet and social media to try and find some sort of meaningful conversation. I don't feel like that is a good barometer for what's actually happening in the real world. <clears throat> but the more time you spend on there, the more easily you're fooled, the more you might even be convinced. And that only further kind of engages this defensiveness. So, so I guess the main thing is that I'm now navigating because before that I didn't even have, like, I didn't even have a cell phone, a flip phone. I was like using maps to drive places, like completely living out in the country here in, in cow country in the middle of North Carolina. And I'd moved from, from New York. I lived in New York city for many years. I grew up on Long Island. So I kind of opted out of society and I toyed around with the idea of maybe I should kind of step into the ring and I'll do it anonymously. I'll wear like an eyes wide shut mask or something like a, um, some kind of ballroom mask masquerade, but I kept backing out of it and I just, I'm like, who the fuck am I really? Honestly, who am I? Because there's so many people out there. What could I possibly say? What could I possibly bring to the fore that hasn't been covered more eloquently, more thoroughly by more practiced people? And that went on for a while, for at least two years. This was all during COVID. I was kind of like trying to figure out, like, should I step up there and add to the discourse? Is it just going to be noise? And then finally, I was, it was pretty weird. I was put in a situation where, where things got actually, believe it or not, and this is how spirituality has consistently challenged me. And I don't know if it's because of karma or wh whatnot. I know it has something to do with my challenges in life. But specifically, I was put in a, a condition where I things financially got very dire and it got to the point where I couldn't like still working full time and all this stuff. And I couldn't figure out how I was going to, how I was going to even this situation out. It's like, I couldn't, I just being candid, really <clears throat> looking for jobs at every place, save like a fast food restaurant and just not being able to find it, especially out here in the country where I live, there's really, there's not a lot of opportunity. So, I mean, that's why now I drive an hour and a half every day, one way to work because I have to drive to a major city to, to be able to support myself. And so my girlfriend at the time, she's my fiance now, but she really encouraged me and showed me these classes. Like you can do this to try and monetize and maybe bring in extra money that way. And there were all these kind of, I was in the heart of several esoteric societies. I mean, it's kind of like Harry Potter. There's a totally different fucking world out there. And if you're not a part of it, when you step into it, you're like, whoa, this is, it's, it's crazy. It's wild. It's a world unto itself. But so I was kind of like neck deep in that. And there's this constant admonition within that world. Like you shouldn't do this for financial gain. You shouldn't do this for financial gain. And it got to the point where it's like, I feel like I'm being I feel like something else is kind of pushing me into this arena because I kind of, I, I did, I do this reluctantly. 
But when I decided that I was going to, all right, I'll make one episode, right? <clears throat> See how it goes. <laughs> I'll elect. I can always take it down. I've done that before. I've put up like, like a, an audio only thing where I go on a rant for 40 minutes and then I take it down after like three hours. I'm mortified. So uh, I had done that before. I'm like, I'll do that again. I end up shooting this video, all this equipment, camera equipment, software, just, I didn't have to pay a dime. It just showed up and it's still the stuff I use. This mic right here was a gift. Like I, I did not buy this mic. I ended up with a full like studio worth of equipment for free. And I did that first episode, What is Magic, on the Arcanum channel. I filmed that. Then I filmed like this intro teaser trailer for, my, for the channel. I waited. I waited. I specifically astrologically elected for the release of that video. So I found the exact astrological conditions that I wanted for this, from what I needed out of this show. And it was crazy. It like, I'd never... I mean, I'd been a musician for years and it's, it was like painstaking to get three people to like your posts on Facebook. You spent $5,000 on a record and <laughs> it's like after a weekend, nobody cares anymore. So it's like having the video go like, like quasi viral, like 6,000 views in like just like a couple of days. And that was my, the first thing I had ever published and getting all this reaction. I mean, I'm sky, you reached out to me and immediate, like immediately after that, I put that video up and we were talking and I was like, okay, this might work. Maybe I'll keep going. But the thing is, once I decide to do something right, regardless of the reasons for starting it, I go in all the way. I give my all. And that was the same way for initiation with me. I, we don't, I ask all the students in the various groups and presentations, like, why are you here? And there's all these highfalutin answers like, well, I'm on my quest and I have the Gnostic itch. And it's like, well, you've got to learn. This is, you don't have to lie to me. Like, I, I don't care if you're not honest with me, I, it's not a big deal, but you got to learn to be honest with yourself because most of us come to something like magic or at least stay in magic because there's something about our lives that we want to fix or have power over and uh, coming to something under the guidance of something material, something mundane, something egotistical even. That might not be the most flattering way to start out, but it's typically the lower impulses of our human nature that bring us to the foot of our greatest work because those things evolve and you need pressure in life in order to have the gumption. Maybe Mark, for you, it was the pressure of your family or your friends and things like that. And uh, Sky for you. I know you are one of the most inquisitive people I've ever met in my life and I love it. And that's a kind of pressure in and of itself to bring you on. And Mark, you mentioned that too, your curiosity. But I, I really didn't intend to do a podcast. I mean, if you listen to the early episodes, like I had, I wanted to do the channel thing because I'm like, all right, I can write all this out. I don't have to improvise. And then I ended up having a couple of really good conversations with some Masonic brothers and with some people that are, are temple mates in the Golden Dawn. And we had amazing conversations about magic, those first like three or four conversations. And it just snowballed into this thing where now, like you guys, I'm, I like have the privilege of talking to some of the foremost people in, in my field of occultism. So the demonization of if you give your entire life to something, 
you have, you should be, you should at least, if you have something to contribute, because I found out that in the process of this stuff, that people gravitate with my style. They gravitate to the hard love kind of stuff. They gravitate to my rants. They gravitate to my passion. They gravitate to all that stuff. And there's going to be other podcasters or presenters out there that are a little more chill. And maybe they're a little bit more like, I want to say academic, right? Uh, don't really take the practitioner, the belief basis. They don't incorporate those insights into their output. That's fine. There's going to be like a somebody for everybody. But I'm finding that there, there are people that I was able to, I have been able to reach and help. And that the, if I would have adhered based on the fear and on the societal pressures of the groups that I was in, right? You'd think that we're all trying to do spiritual work here, but it doesn't always work like that. But there's pressures from within those groups. What are you doing? Don't make any waves. Don't put your face out there. Like, why were you not supposed to do this? This is, you're an initiate. But I think the time has come to de-occult everything and lay it bare, but it's got to be done right. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of bullshit up, out there. And to be hundred percent honest with you, it does have the potentiality to be dangerous. So that's why I'm kind of here. That's beautiful. Yeah. And so Mark, like I know you have a lot of guests on where you, things often get into curiosities and speculation revolving around various esoteric orders or quote unquote secret societies and whatnot, the good, the bad, ne nefarious, malevolent. And like, like you, I'm so fascinated and intrigued with these worlds as well and these traditions and understanding them deeper. And so I think it's cool that we have Ike here as, as an initiate into a variety of these Western esoteric traditions so that we can definitely get into anything revolving around that. But one thing you, you have a particular focus on that I've been wanting to see what you've uncovered with is the skull and bones. And I myself, I know very little about it. I've only come across like TikTok clips here and there for whatever that's worth. I don't know. But what to you are some of like the craziest aspects or more intriguing findings that you've kind of un uncovered within your research and poking around with that so far? Well, I definitely became a student of the topic first. And I think something that just to clarify, when it comes to like my insights might not be the 101 that you're looking for because the skull and bones is sort of been kicked down the road. Obviously, George Bush and John Kerry in the, what was it? 2004, 2000, yeah, 2004 election. They were both members of skull and bones. I think they were even part of the same class. So. Yeah, there, there's tons of factoids that people can dig up. But for me, what really got me into all this was running across a gentleman who happened to be homeless at the time when I met him. This was back when I was a student at Gateway Community College. And I ran into him one day and he liked my shirt, had a picture of Sitting Bull on it. He happened to be a Native American. So he thought, oh, here's a friend. And we just kicked it off. We started smoking weed and talking and he would tell me stuff about his life growing up in Arizona and, you know, why he ended up in New Haven. And part of the reason he ended up in New Haven, Connecticut is because one of his ancestors, Geronimo, was taken from his grave, his skull and his femur bones posthumously. And those 
objects were taken, those body parts really, were taken to Yale University to be kept in the Skull and Bones headquarters. And none other than George H.W. Bush's father, Prescott Bush, and a couple of others happened to be the ones to do that, right? And that, to me, at such a young age, I mean, I was fascinated with Native American culture. My dad had a best friend growing up who's a part of a tribe here in Connecticut. So I'd been exposed to an actual living Native American person my entire life. He just seemed like a normal dude to me. But going to his house, there'd be different sort of decorations and things that would pique my interests. But yeah, it kind of was a conundrum. Like, why would this secret society that's obviously interested in making tons of money and controlling the world, right? Why would they need some dead Native Americans' bones? What's that? What's the purpose of that? Well, Amos explained to me that it was a way of taking power from the Native Americans. You got to keep in mind when Skull and Bones was founded in 1832, America what was not what it is today. I mean, Kentucky and everything West was still kind of wild and uncharted, right? So it was all Native Americans and the people on the East Coast considered them savages, dangerous, worth killing, worth cleansing from the land because they weren't Christian. And some of them did convert. But for the most part, we all know now the horrible genocide that occurred and the basically removal from their ancestral lands, right? So it's a long, tragic history that I was only slightly aware of, but it definitely felt like adding insult to injury to take this old man's bones and bring them to some ivory tower school, right? And I thought, well, there must be some occult aspects to this. There's got to be more to it. There must be something about this. And it just kept whittling away in my mind. I eventually found authors like Anthony Sutton and Chris Milligan, who I've interviewed on my podcast, who put this really amazing book together, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. And this book talks about the Geronimo situation and how the mid 20th century, there was an attempt to get Geronimo's skull back and that Yale was given, gave them this sort of child skull saying like, yeah, here you go. And the tribe was like, obviously this isn't Geronimo and felt insulted and left and they couldn't do much because it was like the 1950s and that's just the way shit was back then, right? Kick rocks, black people are getting sprayed with hoses in the streets. We can give a damn about you Native Americans. So, but then when Bush was in office, obviously with his affiliation with Skull and Bones, there, there was sort of, I guess, more attention on the subject potentially. And a gentleman actually sued the U.S. government for violating the United States Repatriation Act, which says that all stolen burial goods or artifacts from Native Americans should be given back or returned to their rightful owners where they belong. So obviously, given his president, the Secret Service got involved and that guy was discredited. I forget his name. I think it was Nelson, something Nelson. But he was discredited. And then during the Obama administration, another person attempted to get Geronimo's skull back. So 
but it's not just Geronimo's skull. They have Martin Van Buren's skull, potentially. They have Pancho Villa. They have some random, I guess you could say random, but lesser known Native Americans, like a, an outlaw named the Apache Kid, and a few others. Some even say they have Shakespeare's skull. Other people say that they have, I think it's Oliver Cromwell, who was the enemy of the royals in England, right? So there's a ton of people that are allegedly kept in this crypt under Yale's skull and bones tomb. And there's a whole interesting history to back up why skull and bones would even land in a place like New Haven at Yale University in 1832. So we can get into that. But yeah, that's essentially what I kind of, what piqued my interest initially was this friend of mine, Amos, who's now no longer homeless. still lives in New Haven. I I see him from time to time. We talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. There, I mean, with Ike here, I'm sure Ike can shed light maybe on some occult uses of skulls historically. I mean, there's been word that the Templars used to drink out of skulls or maybe used St. John the Baptist's skull as a sort of oracle. I don't, obviously, I'm not an initiate, so I wouldn't know whether that's true or not, if that's just sort of a legend or if that's even something that's talked about in modern lodges, if at all. But it certainly seems like Skull and Bones has Freemasonic aspects to it. One of their other secret societies at Yale, the Wolf's Head Lodge, they're more outwardly Freemasonic with actual allegiances to Freemasons and children or students whose parents were Freemasons would normally go into the Wolf's Head Lodge rather than Skull and Bones. But I believe Freemasons had been in Skull and Bones as well, because back in the 19th century, Freemasonry for a time was very popular, then went into decline and then became popular again, right? And part of why Skull and Bones was even founded in the first place is because Freemasonry had become persona non grata and nobody wanted to be associated with it because of the William Morgan affair and the third party of anti-Freemasons, anti-Mason party or something or other. So there's this whole history of these groups going even further underground to obfuscate their actual agendas and motives. And even in New Haven, sort of local papers from time to time, you'd have authors who or journalists who report on people claiming that Yale were communists. And that wasn't a term that was used very often in the 19th century, but they accused these folks conspiring in secret rooms of being communists and taking over Yale University from the inside out. And now with Yale University and all of their amazing accomplishments and associations, the wealth, the enormous wealth. I mean, they're the second wealthiest private institution in the country, I believe. And they've been around since 1701, which is longer than the country itself, right? So you have to wonder if these institutions are even patriotic at all. I mean, whether they're allied to America. That's something I've asked myself. Still don't have a conclusion here one way or another. But uh, it's a fascinating saga that I've uncovered. I mean, there's others that have come before me. I'm on the shoulders of some giants in that way. But 
there's a lot of things that I've uncovered in looking into like the history of New England and New Haven and the colonies that I just, we weren't taught in schools, even as a local. I mean, Ike, you're from Long Island, you said. I'm sure you got a little bit of the colony, the colonial history as a kid growing up in school, right? So oh, yeah. you're oh, familiar. Yeah. And what's interesting is New Haven Colony actually considered Long Island a part of New Haven County for some time. So a lot of those early towns on the North Shore of Long Island were found yeah. people from Connecticut. And there's a lot of associations, even Huntington, New York, yeah. which, yeah. which well possibly is the Huntington family. William Huntington Russell was one of the founders of Skull and Bones. And then along with Alfonso Taft, whose grandson became the only man to ever serve as president and Supreme Court justice, right? So a very interesting long line of wealthy, powerful individuals who have associated themselves with Skull and Bones one way or another. And I mean, even schools like Stanford University and the University of California, Berkeley were founded by Skull and Bones alumni, John Hopkins University as well. So, I mean, and the list goes on and on. It's really, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but you can also fold in espionage because New Haven is the home of America's first spy, Nathan Hale. And it's also the place where Benedict Arnold was a Freemason. The you know what, actually, Nathan I think Nathan Hale is buried in the Huntington Cemetery. I'm pretty sure I used to. I, I wouldn't think, doubt that. I think there's somebody buried in Huntington Cemetery. I used to go up there on my lunch break. I worked in Huntington for years. I was a bartender there. I wouldn't doubt that at all. Yeah. And like I said, Benedict Arnold, another spy, maybe not a patriotic one. He was a loyalist. But he was a Freemason in the one of the first Freemasonic lodges in the United States, which was in New Haven. I don't believe they were the first. Ike, you may know the first, but they were one of the oldest and contiguous as well. They still exist to this day and have a very large piece of real estate in New Haven right across the street from Yale University's science buildings. But Skull and Bones kind of fits into this secret society matrix at Yale. There are more than eight official secret societies and over 40 undergraduate secret societies, but the official secret societies only take seniors and they tap them in the latter part of their junior year. And they only participate in the rituals of Skull and Bones during their senior year, which helps add to the secrecy, right? Because it's just less fraternizing with non-members when you're a senior. You're kind of almost done. You're on your way out. Yes, you have some of your hardest work ahead of you, but you're also more isolated than you were when you were a freshman and a sophomore. So this only adds to the secrecy that's sort of goes hand in glove with being a part of these groups. And it's not just Yale. Harvard has their secret societies. And the first collegiate secret society was actually in Virginia. It was the Flat Hat Club, which Thomas Jefferson allegedly helped found or was a part of. It's really unclear, but I've learned recently that there's thought that Shakespeare himself came to America and was buried underneath the College of William and Mary. And he was a member somehow of this Flat Hat Club. But 
And again, there are some people who think that Shakespeare was a sort of amalgam of different people, more than one person. So who knows? It could have been one of the Shakespeare's rather than the single Shakespeare. But so many different rabbit holes. I mean, if you guys are interested, I can screen share some photos of the architecture throughout New Haven, and you could just see the symbolism inlaid into the concrete and asphalt and the brownstone and all the different ornations on each individual building, especially the secret society buildings, which just look straight out of Egypt or Africa in a lot of cases, which I think harkens to this sort of worldliness that's inherent, obviously, to the university, but also to these secret societies. I mean, the Freemasons are, if I'm not mistaken, sort of, I don't know if this is officially, but they're known as the travelers, right? In a certain way. So traveling or traveling men. Yes. Right. Right. So, and this is something that, again, you see taking all these different pieces from different cultures and bringing them into one sort of school of thought and showing how maybe all these cultures had the same architect, right? That's part of Freemasonry. And you see that with the physical architecture of some of these buildings where different aspects of the building are meant to give you the illusion of other classical old world buildings from the Near East or Europe, right? So they're constantly pulling from the zeitgeist of occult symbols and then putting them on display. I mean, Yale is kind of like a zoo or a, a out, outdoor art museum of these types of symbols. You just have to have the right eye to suss them out. Yeah. I mean, there's a tremendous amount there. The first thing that I want to, I basically, in my earlier mid twenties, late twenties, I kind of went on the, the rabbit hole. I went down the rabbit hole for with secret societies and all that kind of Masonic conspiracy and stuff like that. And the thing that is continually surprising to me is how much I'm still learning about specifically masonry. I can't speak much to Skull and Bones. They are non-Masonic. They're not affiliated Masonically. They're not any recognized Masonic body. However, masonry is not a unified thing. There is no like United States Grand Lodge for Masonry, they're all regional. So I'm beholden to the Grand Lodge of North Carolina and they participate, right? They have, I, I forget what it's called, but it, they have good relationships with some lodges in other states. And sometimes they don't have good relationships with other states because they don't like their politics over things like gender and race and stuff like that. Freemasonic the Grand Lodge of each state is free to say, you cannot come and visit our lodges because we don't like what your state did. It's not this thing where everybody's receiving a letter in the mail from the head poobah somewhere. And that's the thing. It's extremely localized. And also something during the 1800s, not only with the Morgan affair and things of that nature and anti-Masonic parties, but... <clears throat> We saw this renaissance of, and it really, it came out of the literature of the time. Albert Pike, Eliphas Levy, late 1800s, mid 1800s, early 1800s, even a lot of the stuff, the French occultism that was coming through in the late 1700s, Martinism, things like that. It created this kind of 
post-war joiner society. And I know 1832 Skull and Bones was founded, so that's, that's not post-war. But it was around this time that there was this kind of reemergence or resurgence of these orders. The thing is, at the time, people were revamping everything. Masonic bodies had been gutted. That's why Albert Pike was able to go into the Scottish Rite and rewrite all the rituals and put like Lucifer at the top. You know, it wasn't like Scottish Rite is a French Masonic Rite. But when he got there, Albert Mackey read him the rituals and he never went through a single ritual. He sat at a table and he read him the rituals. So he's like, you know what? Let me interject my philosophy. And a lot of it he lifted. If you read Morals and Dogma and Eliphas Levy's Doctrine and Ritual, I mean, he lifted whole cloth from Levy. And Levy was a sensationalist and he was very obscure. And that's typical of French masonry. A lot of that had to do with Catholicism at the time. A lot of that had to do early, earlier traditions with the revolution. People meeting in secret was kind of a, they were on high alert for that thing, but it happened nonetheless. And it led to the revolution. Same thing in this country. There were in former times, there was more of a necessity for secrecy in just getting together to do these things. And there was also a culture of militarism or military duty that everyone had to serve. And they defined themselves by these institutions of men coming together, right? They didn't have lacrosse teams. They didn't have college football. Men got together in the military. And if you've ever been a part of a sports team or an organization, there is something in, in that camaraderie as a man that you I'm not placing it higher or lower than any other type of relationship, but it is a unique experience. It is a unique human experience to turn to an elder and have your affirmation, have your experience of life be affirmed and have guidance. And you can't get that from an older woman. You can get a different type of guidance, but there are some things that only an older man is going to be able to teach you. And then you get to pass that on to younger generations and help them along. And really, to me, that is the the entire reason I'm involved in masonry. The charity work, the fraternity, the ritual demands are pretty high. In my lodge, we have to memorize literally everything, which is excellent. I love that. It's great memory work, the Ars Memoria. But typically, you know, around that time in the 1800s, you saw the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. You saw the revival of the Scottish Rite. You saw the Aurum Solis being formed. There were so many organizations being formed in the 1800s. And uh, there's a lot of occultism every time there's a war, not just afterwards, but before it, like leading up to it. There's a tremendous amount of occultism surrounding the history of the last maybe like four major wars for Americans. I would say the classical war period, Civil War, Revolutionary War, World War I, World War II. But so that doesn't really surprise me because there's also like something called the Odd Fellows that was formed. And a lot of times, like these organizations were more interested in Freemasonry to this day. Like this is an obligation you take. If any of these men, the highest or the lowest, you all meet on the level, everyone is equal here. Doesn't matter their creed, their color, their beliefs. So long as you're not an atheist, you cannot become a Freemason if you don't believe in a God or a higher power. And there are clandestine lodges that other Masonic bodies don't recognize that sure. Yeah. Like there's some French Freemasonic stuff that they allow atheists, but it's like, just because I'm in this band of musicians over here to, to use an analogy and some musicians somewhere else are doing something else. 
Like we have a shared activity. What we do falls under a particular banner, but that doesn't mean we're in the same band. It doesn't mean we're making albums together. And I'm using this as a really simplified analogy to show that like masonry is decentralized throughout the world. And at the local level, like we are getting together and like we're eating chicken and pudding. Okay. (laughs) And we're doing, you know, ritual work that like, I would say less than half the people understand. And all of it is pertaining to serious amounts of prayer, charity, and moral teaching. Now, if you create a society like Skull and Bones that falls out of line with Masonic teaching or Masonic etiquette, you will be considered non-Masonic. First of all, you need a charter. Somebody has to charter you. Like it's a lineage thing. All these occult societies are based off of lineage. They give you a charter and say, okay, well, where'd you get this charter? Who gave you the right to go and open this? And if for a true Masonic body, even the ones that aren't worked anymore, the ones that they just lock away in the Grand College of Rights and stuff like that, you, they are traceable. They have papers. Somebody somewhere, like Martina de Pasquale founded the Elu Cohens. It was like this elect group of renegade exorcist priests who like were helping the Catholic Church without the Catholic Church knowing it to exorcise the aura of the earth. Earth and the Bonnie Prince Charlie wrote the charter, gave the charter to his dad. So it's there's this paper trail as well. The thing is, people, and I speak from experience, right? I was on the outside, I am now on the inside, and I'm not like Freemason number one fan. There's a lot of issues in the fraternity for sure, especially in the modern day. But people fear what they don't understand. And I'm not saying that skull and bones is something that I would never defend that, would never defend that. And I'll tell you why, because they were the, like that, everything that you're talking about, the communism and the founding of these universities by these families, because that's what it boils down to. They are families, right? George Bush, Jr. and Sr., they're not Freemasons. Bill Clinton, not Freemason. Ton of rumors, nothing substantiated. Hillary Clinton went to Yale. Bill Clinton went to Yale. Okay, Joe Lieberman went to Yale. It's these institutional bodies that they pump the bloodlines through. And these aren't even the these aren't even the top of the top. They're like the they're the enforcers. The people that are given the money, you go do the fucking dirty work. You put the target on your chest. And we're going to Sorry to cut you off cuz what no, you're saying no. is firing me up and I love it. Yeah. Uh, do you think that like in the case of Yale and Skull and Bones, as you said, when masonry was gutted out in that time period, do you think they took the infrastructure of Freemasonry and probably used it with this maybe different bend to it? Like, as you yes. said, departing from what it means to be a real Freemason? Yes, absolutely. Because think of it. How old? I mean, did we all go to college? Not me. Okay. So, Dropped out right. sophomore year. <laughs> Right. So how old would you would have been? I dropped out too to go on tour with a band. Horrible. <laughs> but how old would we would have been when we were seniors in college? I think I would have been like 23. Yeah, 24, 23. All right. So I'm going to speak for myself now, but I was a fucking idiot when I was 23 years old. And I de- if somebody was like, if we were drinking one night at the, the party school that I went to in upstate New York, and somebody was like, yo, I know where the bones of Geronimo are. I'd be like, let's go. It's like, I'm not thinking. So I don't say that to like exonerate. Because yes, you're right. Like there is a tremendous amount of use of human bones in necromancy, exorcism, grimoire, 
and a a reconstruction of some forms of witchcraft. So they're all dark paths of magic, all morally ambiguous and pulling from what we would call the lower astral. Okay. We don't, magicians typically don't work there when you're doing high, high magic. Okay. Temple magic. We need to, we want to get out of that. It's like when a spaceship needs to get out of the stratosphere in order to get into orbit, we have to get through the lower astral. And typically the quicker we're out of that garbage, the happier we are, but absolutely they would have taken the structure again, a bunch of 20 year old boys, probably drunk, these rich pampered American institutions. Okay. Having no real seriousness. It's that classic example of how wealth corrupts the human soul to the point of sadism. Absolutely, there is a sadistic side to these people. And that accounts for the kind of ritual hazings and things like that that they participate in. It's What's really funny to me is that the people whose parents were Freemasons were like, no, you're going to the, you're going to the wolf, Wolf's Head Lodge. I like to stay out of skull and bones. But ultimately, it boils down to these little fraternities that... The bloodline, the power lines, I should say, get pumped through. They've, I mean, these people have been together their entire lives. It's one family with many branches. And so when you look at groups of like Masons, some of us, it's country boys out here, man. It's soup and beans Masons. Like they are praying to God and they're going home to their wife. Right. You can't like you're okay. So like, like, I think like two weeks ago, Mason shot dead. Okay. Then later in the day or like later in the week, Scottish Rite of Greece was in like Athens, I think, was bombed. You are aiming at the wrong fucking people. I'm telling you. Now, it would be the height of naivety for me to say that, let's say, let's take a look at the Grand Lodge in England, okay? That nothing shady goes on in there. It's a human institution. Everything, you, we all live in the United States of America, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg and all that corrupt shit on Instagram, Meta, all this stuff. We're still using his platforms. We still, we're still citizens. We're still availing ourselves of the American infrastructure, right? Like I moved out to the country, but I don't live in the woods. So it's like, because good things can still happen, right? Right. Life has to go on. You have to take what is immediately available to you and perform the best possible good. And with masonry as a teaching of fraternity and morality, I mean, the, you could, there's so much room for good. Yeah. Well, and I'll agree with you there. I mean, the more I've found Freemasons in this story, the more redeeming qualities they've brought to the history that I, I'll admit, came into with some biases, being confronted with that truth from Amos that I guess when you're that young, it's very, anything that you're exposed to is going to have a pretty profound effect on you. But uh, yeah, it's funny. As a podcaster, I mean, I've spoken to at least a dozen Freemasons now, and all of them have sort of backed up what you're saying in their own unique way. And it's, again, like, I wonder what they took from Freemasonry and maybe if Yale was targeted uh, because of its strong patriotic values that it set out with, and that was corrupted by this, what appears to be European faction uh, from Germany at a time when the Holy Roman Empire had recently kind of gave way to these city-states and different families that were warring. And the University of Berlin had this kind of fascist professor who was teaching people about, well, they named it after him, Hegelianism, right? This whole oh, boy. dialectic. 
And that became really influential through Yale and the American system, right? I mean, you're talking about people who went on to manage how the education system would be transformed and molded over the birth and growth of the country, right? So they took techniques that had been formatted at the Prussian military academies and they realized, okay, we can make classes of people with certain styles of education. Let's dumb down what we're teaching these people so that they'll be the best factory workers, right? And now we see the same sort of changes happening with the new younger generations where they're being set up to become these computer whizzes and metaverse people, right? Where they're constantly augmented with screens and keyboards and all this stuff, right? So when it comes to shaping this country, I mean, Yale University literally figured out how to create gasoline. I mean, if you just think about that one thing, you can justify why I guess one of my theses with all this is that there's alchemy going on with Yale. There's an esoteric strain here. I mean, there's sort of, well, architecture evocations to Hermes and Thoth. Yeah. And we could, I could show you guys examples of that, but just in that one act alone, I mean, you literally see the whole world change with the industrial revolution and the advent of these different combustible materials. Not that there weren't other options. Obviously, this was a certain style of commodity that would make them tons of money. I mean, really, that was the prerogative for them was to make themselves incredibly wealthy and they figured out how to do it, right? That's the whole Tesla, JP Morgan right. where he says, well, you can't put a meter on it, son, so we're not going to fund you. We're going with this other guy, Edison. So yeah, I mean, that literally all took place at Yale. I mean, even some of the early elect studies into electricity breakthroughs were done at Yale in conjunction with Benjamin Franklin, who gets all this credit. I wonder what your thoughts are on him as a uh, a Freemason, because he's someone who I understand was allied with the French Freemasons rather than American Freemasons. And yeah, that, well, they met odds with people like Jefferson or Washington. Well, the thing that a lot of people don't understand about Benjamin Franklin is that after the, the, the colonies got their independence, he was almost immediately went over to France and he lived there because he was the ambassador now. And uh, people loved like he used to dress very he was very eccentric and very quirky, and he was essentially like the American ambassador to France. And he went over there and he lived there for a really long time. It might have been till he died. And I'm he was a part of the hedonist societies, the Hellfire Club, and stuff like that over there. And but that's the thing. It's like it's again these things are all everything we do, every institution that we are a part of, every institution that we create. And Sky and I had just, we just did an episode on this. Well, I think we touch on this almost every episode we do, but human beings cannot create anything perfectly. Actually, to be honest with you, nothing on this earth can be created perfectly. And a lot of people will say, well, look how beautiful it is. Look at how beautiful nature is. Look at it. But yeah, but nature decays. It is subject to death. What is philosophically perfect, no matter what it looks like, is deathless, changeless. That's the philosophical definition of perfection. Eternal. Nothing here is eternal. Everything is subject to the downward arc of the spiral, of the circle, of the wheel of samsara, the wheel of the tarot, the wheel of fortune. 
Okay. And so we, as spiritual beings within this material, whatever you want to call it, we have different opinions of it on a scale of goodness, but we, everything that we create, everything, every societal structure, every piece of art, every building, it will be imbued with our highest potentialities and our lowest potentialities. And there will be a season for both. And that's it. And that's true in individual lives. And it's true in the lives of nations. And it's fractal, man. You go in further and it's just, it's at different levels. It's the same pattern over and over. No matter how far you zoom out or how tightly you zoom in, it's the same circle over and over. And that's the whole thing. To me, I find what I find evidence within Freemasonry itself of what you were talking about particularly with a specific emphasis on the, the liberal arts and that because there is an, inf an emphasis on the liberal, the seven classical liberal arts in, in Freemasonry. And this idea of this kind of almost like this worldliness, this monoculture, but that was something that was a product of the enlightenment. So in other words, Masonic ritual, right? It has changed so much over the years, the lectures and all this stuff. It started out as a trade guild, right? Operative masonry. It was a trade guild that basically these people were given money, right? By the state, by the church, by whoever had the money to say, you're going to take all those rocks that are buried in the ground and you're going to build me a beautiful cathedral. You need money to pay for that. All the men, like we don't have, they didn't have power tools. They had hundreds of apprentices chipping away rocks and pulling them, pulling the, excavating them from the earth with ropes. It's like you have tremendous amount of money, tremendous amount of manpower. So these things were trade secrets. You And this is something that we've completely dissociated with. We live in a postmodern world where in 10 seconds, I can go on the internet and find out what it is you do in your little boys club. The, this Freemasonry is not a secret society. The only thing that's secrets are the handshakes. It's And it's the same throughout. We, it's the death of secrecy. And with that, the death of privacy in this age. But it started out with these trade secrets. Like you... And we, they're called traveling men because they moved from town to town and they're called lodges because that's where they would set up their lodge. They would sleep there. They would eat there. And at the, the, it used to be in that time that there would be a tavern open, a public house, and then upstairs would be lodging. And so these masons would take the money that they were given by this nobleman or what have you and go and pay to stay. We're going to be here for a year and a half. Probably more. We're probably be here for 15 years building this chapel. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to post up there. That's our lodging. That's why it's called a lodge. So the thing that's, the thing that's the same in every Masonic jurisdiction is just how you get obligated and introduced. That's it. You get obligated and introduced to everybody. And that's it. And then the other stuff, it changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And some of the lectures were written in the 1700s and some of the lectures were written or updated in the 1800s. It's kind of this rolling thing that gets contributed to and changes when it has to. But so at that time of importation, when these people, it started sh shifting away from operative masonry to speculative and these noblemen and these sons of these educated people coming from wealthy families, they imported the idea of the seven, seven liberal arts into masonry. And, and through that whole sort of cross current, did bring in enlightenment values. They kept the theism, which I'm happy about, but they brought in enlightenment values, which were this kind of monoculture, this monosis, this single 
society. And we're seeing that more and more now, the pressures towards that. And to be honest with you, I don't think that in and of itself is essential or original to masonry because there's a tremendous platonic current, platonic and neoplatonic current. I mean, the G, right? What was like famously written over the door of the of Plato's Academy? Let no man ignorant of geometry enter into here. Okay, what's on the what's on the wall in the east above the worshipful master's head? A gigantic G. What are you told in a certain degree that that G means? It means geometry. Okay, because by by tracing, by studying geometry, we can see the proof of order within the material, the manifest world. And that is basically the fingerprint of its creator. You can almost it's almost a proof, it's a mathematical proof for the existence of a higher intelligence. Okay, and there's a tremendous amount of Platonic and Neoplatonic and really Pythagorean influence. And so, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is like, what did the Pythagoreans believe? They believed that architecture was frozen music, that the highest conception of beauty in this world was proportion, ratio, symmetry. And so everything they did had to embody that. You look at Masonic symbolism. Are we making shit up? I mean, is it? No, we're taking the pentagram of the Pythagoreans. That was their holy symbol. We're taking the cross. We're taking the star of David. It's all like religious symbolism that we look and everybody's like, what, what are they doing? It's religious symbolism because we want to understand the deeper truths, okay? Because we know there's something there. I mean, I would say that got washed out of masonry in favor of just like, all right, let's do a ritual and go have a drink for like maybe like 50 to 100 years. But I'll tell you, it's coming back. The younger brethren are interested in the esoteric stuff. And there is right now a renaissance in this country. It's getting smaller, but it's getting better. Yeah. And another thing, it's interesting because you know, through my podcast, I've made friends with so many guys in various orders and whatnot. And a lot of Freemasons, of course. Holy shit, man. Like, I tell you, I have a completely different take now because, well, for one, I know a lot more after interviewing a lot of different people, but also just seeing how some people respond or the comments that they make to me as even a non-Mason, because I'm friends with Masons. It's kind of fucking bananas sometimes. Like, I'm all about being totally transparent and pointing out or talking about anything good or negative with any group. I diligently try my best to find the truth in all things and some people have just become so certain of their assumptions that they're completely convinced that all Masons are evil and nefarious. And I get messages like, be careful. You don't know what they have planned for you. you. You can't escape it. Or you don't know what they have planned for your children. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, how black pill have you gone? And again, that's not to say history doesn't include examples. Of course, Freemasons included engaging in unethical behaviors but it's like it's called human beings and it's humanity and it's sort of like this dehumanizing thing that really kind of gets me the most but yeah anyway rant over I just wanted to kind of put that out there and into the, the for the people listening um so like I, i'm sure that you've had similar comments coming your way and i don't know i wonder mark like for you after interviewing all these fascinating people a lot of which disagree on different ideologies and whatnot and all their interpretations and their views of the world and the way that things work. Do you ever get caught up yourself in any of that crossfire? 
yourself? Oh, yeah. Well, the more your show gets traction, the more you're going to get those kind of comments. And yeah, for sure. It's it, there's it's beyond just Freemasonry, right? There's the whole shape of the earth that people get upset and triggered by. There's every racial, sexual, gender bullshit issue. The, those groups of people who they just see the word conspiracy theory and they're like, oh, this podcast is racist, right? So. I mean, there's so many weird comments that you get doing a show like mine, but it is, yeah, it is funny to see like people say stuff like that after I have Freemasons on the show. Uh, again, I can only restate what I said earlier that every Freemason that I've had on the podcast has proved what Ike has stated that they're you know, genuinely good people who are doing something to better their lives and also putting themselves out there in a way to better the world and better themselves. Right. So yeah, it's definitely just something you come across. And plus I had a show called Illuminati confirmed with Juan and my friend Chris for a while. And when you do a show like that, people start to say, oh, well, are you Illuminati? Right. If you don't, I mean, people are never going to be happy. So that's why I'm, I just stick with what I enjoy and that's pursuing this passion of trying to understand the country that we live in and I mean, I'm glad to hear that there's a renaissance for those values within Freemasonry. It definitely feels like there's, a, at least when I got interested in all this stuff, that it wasn't so popular. Like people would look at me like, well, why are you wasting your time on that kind of stuff? Learning about like magic or secret societies or shamanism or whatever, whatever topic had fascinated me that week. And, and I just come back to the same drive every time but i mean kind of zeroing back to the subject because i do want to i want to show you guys can i sh share my screen i'm not sure if you're recording you're going to put the video yeah anywhere, I, but... I clicked multiple participants can share simultaneously go ahead and try and see if it works for cool Sweet. so this pdf here is something i put together because i mean new haven's kind of baffled me with this nine square geometry that makes up the center of the downtown. I mean, this was created by a surveyor who was educated at Cambridge University. His name was John Brockett. New Haven has stuck with that layout ever since, and the city's just kind of grown around it. But it just, it's one of these odd features that kind of baffled me as a resident at times, an employee at various businesses within the city. So I just always, it stuck out to me. Like and I even worked in a cafe that was in the ninth square of the nine squares and wasn't in what you would consider the ninth square. If you were to count them from left to right, one through nine. It was in the square that would have been the sixth square numerically. So it just kind of brought to mind possibly that there was some sort of other meaning underfoot, a sort of code. And I ultimately abandoned that notion of the ninth square being out of place. It might just be a sort of mis misnomer that cafe considered itself in the ninth square, but huh. there's still this geometry, and we did just mention how important geometry is, especially to the learned men who were 
setting up the cities that are now important major cities along the East Coast. I mean, New Haven's probably, without Yale University, it would be very low on the list of important cities. Yale's kind of lifted it up some. But as far as like New York City, Boston, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, they're all on this one line. If you draw a line, a straight line, through Washington, D.C. to Boston, in that line will be New York City, New Haven, Trenton, New Jersey, and a bunch of other cities. And sure, that could be coincidence, but then you extend that line even further and you hit places like Atlanta, Georgia, New Orleans, Louisiana, Teotihuacan in Mexico City. And then if you go north, you reach Stonehenge over there in the UK. So New Haven's in a very interesting spot on this, what you could call a ley line. I've spoken to a really intelligent stonemason, although he's not a Freemason, named Peter Shampoo. He's an author. He's written several books. He calls these sort of matrix lines in the Gaia matrix. So there's multiple ways of interpreting these lines. But New Haven, again, is on this line of importance that these major cities seem to be situated on. And I found that interesting. There's other things that it lines up with that maybe we can get to in a moment. But yeah, here's the ninth square or the nine squares. And in the center, the fifth square is the downtown green, which has from bird's eye perspective, what appears to be some sort of pentagram like pathwork here, multiple pentagrams, or maybe a sigil of some kind. Uh, maybe well, that's you interesting. geometry, Ike. It's interesting because the this square here of nine, the greater square composed of nine lesser squares, that's the square of, of Saturn tradition. This is, and this would kind of, it kind of vaguely resembles the classical sigil of Saturn vaguely over there on the, I'm not sure if your screen is mirrored, but like, yeah, what your cursor is around right now. Kind of also reminds me of the unicursal hexagram, but that was, that was something I think that Crowley ended up popularizing. So, but it is, it's pretty interesting that those are, if those, if the geometry and the geometry of the topography is as near to exact as, as possible, then yeah, that's almost this replica of the, the square of the planet Saturn. So there's all sorts of correspondences that link into Saturnian kind yeah. of stuff. And there's also, it's, what's interesting is that I'm not trained in ley line sort of stuff, but I am trained in traditional Chinese medicine. I went to school for that. And yeah, the ley lines essentially, and, and their various tributaries, they are essentially the meridians of chi or energy, which run through the earth. We have them at different levels. There's superficial, medial, and deep channels that run through the human body. And where they rise to the surface and sort of pool are acupoints. And that's kind of where on the ley lines, these and these Gaia acupoints that they were building, that they were putting these cities. And I wonder how much, I'm sure just very briefly, a little bit of cursory research could inform me to some degree, at least where to start looking. But I wonder how much ancient builders were responsible for s selecting these points. That would be very interesting. Yeah, well, and that's sort of roped into what I've been looking into aside from the skull and bone stuff is like the Native Americans and their possible connections to Europe pre-Columbus. But another thing to mention Saturn, New Haven is the Elm City. As you can see, Elm Street is right there and there's tons of Elm trees oh, wow. planted. 
And the elm tree has historically in certain cultures been associated with Saturn. So go figure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting you brought that up because that reminded me of the sigil again that you can kind of make when you take the nine squares and put certain numbers in them and then draw the numbers, maybe like a line connecting certain ones. You'd make like a tetra sort of, not the tetragrammaton, but there's a book that make I a sigil. across. Yeah. And it describes how to make these sigils and it describes the planetary uh, accordant associations with each yeah. sigil. But yeah, they you- have each magic square has so essentially and it's very interesting in terms of its relation to the energy of ley lines or terrestrial meridians terrestrial meridians of energy i should say rather than longitudinal but what's interesting is that again we go back to pythagoras here pythagorean mathematics and this idea that number forget the when you say the number nine right this the, the magic square of nine you say nine and it conjures this image of a symbol, right? Everybody knows the Arabic, which is, that's the mathematical notation system that we inherited in our numerical system, the Arabic numeral nine that appears in your head, but not often is it that the transcendent principles of nineness are immediately brought to mind. And these things, so nine would be, it's so interesting because Nine factors of nine, things that relate to nine, all share in a, if you're a musician, they share in a scale of correspondence. There's a root tonic. There's a perfect fifth. There's a a major or minor third. There's the seventh. There's so depending on where you are in the sequence of nine and its factors, you're kind of at a different rate of vibration. And so each magical square is supposed to embody the scale of nineness, right? And they, each one has a magical constant. And the magical constant is basically the summation of all these, all these, these numbers. And for this, it's actually 45, which is interesting because if you add four and five, it equals nine. But that's also nine times five is also 45. So it's, there, there's this energetic mathematics or a mathematics of energy that these squares are supposed to embody. And the sigils that are created by connecting these, transposing them to letters, let's say in a Hebrew or a Latin, Greek, what have you, some sort of scriptural alphabet to create names, you're creating an energetic signature. And that's how we derive a lot of the names of like these intelligences, these planetary forces, these just disincarnate intelligences that exist on this energetic scale of conscious being. And so we create these names for them because they correspond to the numerical sort of bridging. And each sigil is essentially the signature of that particular intelligence. The way I would have to sign a document, well, well in, in magic, in, particularly in Renaissance magic, we would look at a sigil over a magic square as a similar kind of concept. So it's really interesting that there's a mathematical component to the energy signifying what's going on there. And it's linked up on, on a ley line, which is a terrestrial sort of power line. Yeah, absolutely. And not to mention the entire center square has three churches all facing the east. I'll share my screen again just to 
highlight those. And then underneath the backyard, so to speak, of these three churches, underneath the ground are over 6,000 bodies which were buried during the colonial period. And at a certain point, they realize, okay, we're sort of, we've reached our capacity here. So they built the Grove Street Cemetery, which you'll notice this line, this street right here, this is Ashman Street. It's almost an exact straight line to the corner, the northeast mm. corner of this. Oh, wow. Corner. And you have all the bodies of the wealthier people in New Haven at the time that were transported to the Grove Street Cemetery, which is the first American cemetery of its kind. It's the first cemetery to be uh, segmented with streets and different plots and very ornate burial markers from just your traditional headstone to very large obelisks and even some sepulchers and one tomb that has a mysterious gentleman by the name of Samuel St. John. And he happens to be sort of associated with maybe some of the movers and shakers of New Haven. There's kind of a mystery revolving around why he's buried next to the Sheffields, gave their name to the Sheffield Scientific School, the part of Yale University, which discovered gasoline and how to synthesize it from what was then called rock oil. And yeah, I mean, that was where this tremendous amount of wealth was found and they just built Yale up from the ground with that and the secret societies, they were inherently inextricably a part of it through that process with that scientific school. Many of the students were part of these secret societies like the Book and Snake tomb, which is right here and the Skull and Bones tomb, which is right here in these grayed out plots. But if I can jump down my PDF here to some of the exterior shots of the secret societies that might help you guys understand why I've made the statement that they are maybe evoking symbols from the ancient past and yeah. bring them into this. And Ike, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the comparisons I've drawn, but when it comes to Skull and Bones and their tomb. I don't think I have it in this slide, but the closest structure in the ancient world I could find that resembles this skull and bones tomb, or at least the most recent iteration of it, because it was renovated twice, it looks like the tomb of Tutankhamun, or at least the entrance to his tomb, where they have this triptych door. And the triptych is common with various forms of art and architecture. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. You had this sort of tomb-like structure popping up on a campus right behind the tomb of John Trumbull, who was America's revolutionary painter. They built his tomb because he said before he died that he wanted to be buried underneath his artwork, and they built the building to house his artwork without buildings, hence the nickname The Tomb, which was then carried on to the Skull and Bones building, and that's where its reputation as a tomb sort of began. But they renovated, like I said, several times, and they even took the original Weir Towers, which I can zoom in and show you. They took the original Weir Towers, which used to be the alumni hall of Yale University, and they put them in their own secret courtyard, which is only accessible to Skull and Bones members. There have been 
some photos taken of the inside. Here's one. And there have been a one or two, maybe three off the record break-ins of different parties into Skull and Bones to sort of figure out what they were doing. The most famous was a group called the Order of the File and Claw, and they mockingly named themselves that. But yeah, Skull and Bones is sort of plain compared to some of the other secret society buildings. This scroll and key tomb has a sort of Moorish revival architecture. Wolf's Head Society's old tomb, I've actually been in when I was a delivery guy. I got to see the interior of it. It's no longer the official Wolf's Head building, but it was and still is extant. But yeah, here is the, the new one, and it's behind this very large wall. So if you're walking by, you can't see what I'm showing you in this photo here. And here's the pin for the Wolf's Head members, which maybe you can speak to this, Ike, but I've read that the wolf's head itself is a symbol of the son of a mason and the upside down Ankh here, which the wolf's head is laid upon, has some significance to it, which I'm not sure I haven't found anything describing that, but maybe you can tell me what your thoughts are on it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that's interesting there. Even as you backtracking and going back to the that city square the fact that there's so that grove cemetery and this could totally be complete coincidence although i don't really believe in coincidence but just a point of interest is that the shape of that grove street cemetery is a pentagon so there's that's significant in masonry and not only that but the fact that there's a straight line to specifically the northeast corner that's significant in masonry actually to be honest with you this was a time when, okay, you see that? That's the, that's the Uruwachti right there. The solar disc with the multiple URIA. Yeah. And with Kefera, the scarab beetle, scarabius there in the, and the, so at this time, there's a couple of things societally that we have to remember. So let's look at what they were being taught. Back then, it would have still been somewhat of a liberal arts education with a focus on as the same as there, same as there is in masonry, a focus on the architecture, particularly of the Greeks and the Romans, and not just that, but of the contributions and of the philosophy of the Greeks and the Romans, who time and time again revered and were and were self-professedly educated at the highest levels by the ancient society of their time, which was Egypt. Okay, we the Greeks would look at Egypt the way we look at ancient Greece right now. So. And whether it's Solon or Thales or Pythagoras or Plato, all of these men are attested to have been educated in Egypt and come back to their homelands, respectively, as these incredible natural philosophers. Mystics considered by some to be batshit crazy. Who really knows? So it's very interesting here because if you look at the pot, look at the, look at the pillars here. Do you see the pillars? Okay, so first of all, this also the pylon style. So this would be considered a, a, a gate like a pylon gate. This is all over Egypt. Actually, I just got back from a trip to Egypt. We, I, we, were, in, in, we were in the upper and the lower kingdom. If you go, it, yeah. So if you go there, this looks like right there, that looks like Dendera. Yep, I, that's that, what it is. That's what Okay, it is. So, so if you look at those, that's the closed. There were two sacred flowers that represented the upper and lower, or two sacred plants that represented the upper and lower kingdoms. The papyrus, and the lotus, 
Okay. And so their, their pillars were meant to look like these closed flowers. And some of them were open. One was, and when you saw them together, the open and the closed, it was a sig, it signified the papyrus and the lotus. And that was a signification of the union of both kingdoms of Egypt, the upper and the lower. Right. And I think Narmer was the first one to unify. And that looks exactly like the gates of Dendera. I was at Dendera on Mother's Day, actually. This Henry year. Austin, this guy right here, pictured here, he was actually privy to some of the drawings that came out of Napoleon's conquest of Egypt. And one of the sites they went to was Dendera. And uh, Hermopolis Magna was another one that I've drawn some comparisons or likeness to. It says it right here. The Arabic word for that is Ashmunet, which mm -hmm. comes up here, the word Ashmun just happens to be on this sepulcher that's right at the entrance that we're discussing. Yeah, th this gate was definitely modeled after Egyptian gates that were are still existing, I and, believe. And so that's what's really interesting because what was happening at this time or shortly beforehand, right, was particularly after Napoleon, like you said, you had this flood of archaeological excavation and interest in Egypt. It was basically a run on the Egyptian bank, so to speak, of their cultural heritage and shit that's just in the sand. Now, some of that is good because people came and dug it out and restored it and we have it. But a lot of that was bad because a lot of it ended up in the British Museum still to this day. Not only that, but they were unwrapping mummies at like wealthy dinner parties. It was the Wild West. It was like the, whoever had the money to do it could fly home or sail home with a mummy. And so that cultivated along with the works of, of Wallace Budge and all these great explorers, it cultivated this sense of Egyptomania, right? Because not only were we finding shit, but stuff was getting translated. And we were finding out more and more that like this, this was a people who did not look at the world the way we do. This is a people who viewed, right? Heka, magic, the God for magic, is one of the several deities that is on the bark or the solar boat of Ra. So if you're on that boat, it means that you have to do with the creation and maintenance of the universe. So right there, they're placing magic in a pivotal role of creation. So at that, you have societies like, you have Cagliostro's Memphis and Misraim claiming, right? That was who he was. Cagliostro was the Egyptian mason. He kept claiming that like, look, the Egyptian stuff goes back to Egypt. You guys have no idea. You've pumped all of this kind of Enlightenment era, liberal arts stuff into it. But this is deeply Egyptian, right? Because first of all, going to Egypt, you really realize, like, I get why the sun and its path in the sky was so significant to them. Because you know where the sun is every second of the day in Egypt. It is burning a hole in your skin. And it gets so hot and there are like, there's like no clouds. I, we had an Egyptologist taking us around and explaining all this stuff. And he was like, yeah, he's like, if it rains here, kids like run out in the street and they scream and bang on doors. Like it's raining. It's like somebody living in California seeing snow for the first time. But it's, but essentially the rituals of masonry, they're a capitulation of, or a recapitulation of that same thing. I mean, the, look at Luxor, right? the ancient city of Thebes, right? It was a capital. It's divided by the River Nile. On the east side, that's where the pharaohs lived, had their palaces. That's where all those, the temple complexes were. And on the west side, 
that was where the burial tombs are. The Valley of the Kings, the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut, all the workmen buried over there. Because where does the sun rise in the east? And where does it go to die every day? The West. And so in the ritual orientation of Freemasonry and the several occult and esoteric traditions from which it came, the Golden Dawn, Martinism, Elu Cohen, all this stuff is Masonic. All of it starts with and at Mason. It follows the path or the apparent path of the sun in the sky. In a Masonic lodge, there's nobody in the north because the sun in the northern hemisphere only travels through the southern sky. Okay, and so the officer sitting in the southern part of the lodge is considered to represent the sun at its apex in the sky. The officer in the west is the epitome, the embodiment of spiritual light coming to, descending downward towards the candidate and blessing them, giving them that light specifically to them after they've prayed to their God for it. And then in the West, you have the officer that, that closes the day when it's the sun sets in the West. The Egyptians, they only have, I think still to this day, their word is like for the afterlife is amenti, which essentially means the West. And their word for dying is just Westing. So it's this tremendous solar story, which essentially, which when all these orders that were cultivated to bring you through initiatically, they inculcate one thing, the soul continues. And each individual life is like a page in a book that, that I don't want to say doesn't end, but you will rise again like the sun. But, you know, you have to experience the reality of your soul while you're in a physical body. Because, and here's where skull and bones borrows from masonry. They take the skull and bones, which is an emblem of death, right? It's a memento mori. And they take the idea of being in a tomb, a sepulcher. We see this in Rosicrucianism, right? The tomb of Christian Rosenkreuz. We see it in, in all sorts of esoteric stories because what it's trying to inculcate is that in order for you to incarnate, your soul had to die to the spiritual. In order for your soul to be raised again while you live, you must die to the physical. And they realized this stuff in the Egyptian literature that was coming forth and they imported a lot of it into masonry. They imported it into art and architecture because this was, I mean, this is what they were learning. They weren't learning about cultural studies in Africa and, and gender studies. and They were learning Greco-Roman history. So that's, that's who they had in their heads, those poets, those philosophers. They tried to recreate that stuff because Plato said and the Pythagorean maxims, all those philosophers that they, were, that they had access to and had influenced society for 23, 2400 years, we're saying the same things. Like you will cultivate your soul if you create beauty around you. Because what you're doing is you're, it's a demiurgic act. You're taking, you're taking the proportion. You're using the ruler, the compass, the square that God used to create the universe. And you're doing that in miniature when you replicate ratio, symmetry, it's a harmony of physical objects. Like I said earlier, it's frozen music. Uh, Mark, I wanted to ask you, just out of curiosity, kind of bouncing back to that like nine square thing that you were displaying on the screen and maybe any of your other research or anything that you're aware of, because that one kind of had like this depiction of a Saturnian sort of aspect to it. Like if you follow that ley line, because you were saying it, it links up 
I think you said like with DC or different spots. Do you find in any of those other areas different geometries that depict Saturnian sort of stuff as well? Is it along that line or does it come with different sort of planetary depictions? Yeah, that's a good question. You'd have to find someone in each of those cities. I mean, there's tons of work that's been done interpreting the layout of Washington, D.C. I'm sure Ike's aware of all that. And Philadelphia as well has a sort of 16-segmented shape. It's 16 squares, and it makes a sort of, I mean, I would be amiss, it's sort of like an I or an H-shaped I guess Philadelphia's beginning. Boston's so colonial that, I mean, you really don't have a shape with a lot of the city layouts that's discernible. But I've seen, again, referencing Peter Shampoo, he's described what looks like a hexagram within a hexagram in Boston. And he has different ways of interpreting that, even including like the actual landscape features of the harbor and whatnot. But no, honestly, I've only really examined New Haven at this length to be able to say like, yeah, this is Saturnian. I'm glad Ike backed that up because that was one of the first things that I was astonished to find. And to mention the Egyptians again, the Beinecke rare book and manuscript library, which itself is sort of shaped like a tomb and can kill you with the argon gas they use to protect from fires if you're unlucky enough to get stuck in there. But they have an Egyptian book of the dead, which as you were just referring to, they realize that when you die to the physical, you go into the spiritual. And this was one of the tools that they would be buried with in order to educate themselves in the afterlife, potentially. So it's kind of ironic that now they have this book in a library because really it was never meant to be in a library. It's meant to be in the tomb for someone to use during their afterlife, right? So and along with the Voynich manuscript, the world's first, or not first, but oldest Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. And that's all in the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, right next to Osama Noguchi's underground sculpture garden, which if that name doesn't ring a bell, I don't blame you. But he's responsible for a number of really amazing outdoor pieces of artwork, including Hart Plaza's Detroit portal, basically what Chad Stemke, another author, describes as a as a Stargate portal. And that whole area has a sort of evocation of Orion. So I, I don't believe Orion is Saturnian, so there's not an example of that. But maybe that's an example of a city like Detroit resembling Orion. Horace Dodge was uh, the founder of the Dodge Company, and they have a sculpture to him. Dodge Motor Company. Yeah. Horace well, obviously I, that's I, a name I, that goes back very that, that was Orion. Orion to the Egyptians was Horus, actually. But I think you said Taurus, right? No, <laughs> um, Horus. Horus. Yeah. Horus was the constellation of Orion was Horus to the Egyptians. What's interesting is that uh, which city did you say had 16 squares? Philly? Philadelphia has this sort of what I've seen like originally the, light, the layout was like 16 squares. That is so cool because that's the square of Jupiter. And Jupiter is essentially where you would, that's the archetype of brotherly or fatherly love. Wow. That's, that is, that's who Jupiter is. So that's really interesting. So in other words, think of it also certain meridians in the, and I, I'm speaking off 
off of, I, I'm kind of using by way of analogy, what I understand about the energetics of the human body and transposing that onto. So for anybody who's listening that might really know sh there's shit about ley lines, I apologize, but it's just an interesting thing to, to think about is that certain lines of energy, they have a certain function within the human body, or let's say the totality of the organism, physical organism, but different acupoints do different things. So it would be interesting that while they're on the same line, they're kind of embodied. It looks like they almost found a planetary sort of like, right? Because there's elemental stuff, there's planetary stuff, there's zodiacal stuff. These are the, the classical elements of the constituent aspects of each of the material universe are the, the elements, the zodiac, and the, the planetary forces. And they're like higher octaves of the stuff that's down here, energetically. Have you heard of the Glastonbury Zodiac in England, Ike? It's not ringing a bell, but I've been to Glastonbury. Well, to answer, Sky, your question, there's an example of one place that has all 12 Zodiac signs. I know Saturn isn't in the Zodiac necessarily, right? But I guess there are certain constellations that have Saturnian qualities or aspects yeah. of them, right? Yeah, but, they're ruled by specific planets. Right. So, but there's an example in just one place in the old world in Glastonbury where, you know, whoever set this up, Druids or maybe early Masons, they created these mounds that when you look at the roads that have been created around the base of the mounds, the easiest way around them is path of least resistance. It's actually created what looks like the 12 figures of the Zodiac, each constellation right there in Glastonbury. So yeah, yeah. I, I think there's tons of examples of this. I'm sure there's many in other parts of the world that are just in cultures that I don't have the symbol set to recognize, but in the Native American culture, you see tons of mounds in various different shapes, not just like the pyramid mounds, but you see effigy mounds in the shape of different animals, man, different beings of a mythological origin, potentially. So mm. yeah, it goes on and on. And New Haven's a great example of a place that has this sort of esoteric underlying symbol, right? I mean, this is available to those who have the knowledge to be able to discern it, right? And I think that's a part of going to Yale is you, you sort of distinguish yourself from other people at college. I mean, it's one of the renowned Ivy League universities, right? Not many people can say they've gone there and yeah, it is extremely exclusive and expensive. So that's part of it. But, but yeah, I mean, right down to their motto, Lux et Veritas. I mean, it, it seems to me like there's a hermetic strain with Yale that might not be outwardly apparent to those who presume that New England's all Christians, wasps, and so on. So you mentioned that book, the Voynich Manuscript. I've heard of this, yeah. but I actually haven't really explored it too much. Maybe, I don't know, I'm curious, either one of you, if you have any insight? Well, the Voynich manuscript is a real brief 101 on it because it's an ongoing mystery. I don't know that anyone's deciphered it yet, but nope, it's yet. the linguistic tests and it's a, a real language that people might have used maybe in coded ways or maybe it's a culture that's been lost to the rest of the world or who knows, but it contains a bunch of very interesting 
drawings and people's best guess is that it's some sort of compendium of biology, right? Or the use of certain plants and herbs and maybe other natural sort of like a farmer's almanac, but written in a language that's totally alien and to this day undeciphered. So, but it's very rare, obviously it's one of a kind and expensive. So Yale's just kind of, that's part of the flaunting their wealth. I think like they, they're, they feel it's necessary for them to attain these things to achieve the highest level of education. Yeah. Well, also the thing is that the people, so, so things like the Voynich manuscript and, and some of the other things that you had mentioned, I think maybe a version of the book of dead of the dead, these are when an artifact is recovered, maybe architecturally or in terms of some sort of physical craftsmanship, typically they go to museums. And then they're studied and they're radiocarbon dated, et cetera, by professionals in the field, somebody in the scientific field of archaeology, et cetera. On the other hand, you've got texts, and those typically will go to universities because it's the same thing, the same principles apply. They're inviting world-class scholars to try and decipher this if it has to happen under the auspices of a university. And obviously the Ivy Leagues you're going to get. They're not going to go to SUNY Oneonta to, and so like, to get the Voynich manuscript. To, but that's, I think that's how they end up in the hands of educational institutions is that it's basically like, look, we're going to have the best scholars in the world looking at this damn thing. Um, well, but one thing that stood out, and I totally agree with you, I mean, that's definitely how it should be interpreted. I think that's correct. But when you look at the overwhelming pattern with what's displayed and collected at Yale's museum and how Yale's art museum is in, inextricably connected to the secret societies financially, things like Mithraic tomb that was exhumed and put back together within the Yale art museum, pharaohs, dead animals that were mummified and buried away thousands of years ago i mean they have tons of very it sounds like the it sounds like like what like a night at the adams family house right well it yeah it's like the peculiar curiosity cabinet of these very wealthy people and i guess i i'm certainly biased to some extent but I, when i see some of the things that are collected there for example a depiction of one of these assyrian watcher beings i don't remember the exact name but the Ancient Aliens, the TV show always shows these because they have like wrist watches, what appears to be wrist watches on their arm. And some of them have like bird heads, but they have these big Assyrian reliefs right at the entrance of the antiquities section. So tons of things that just walking through there with the right eye, it will stand out to you and make you think twice. I mean, obviously there are Freemasons in New Haven, so maybe that they're a part of that, but I don't assign any malevolence to that. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the thing. I definitely, I'm definitely of the opinion. I'm more, more inclined to agree with you on, on things like Yale in particular being an appropriated institution, or maybe it was like that from the beginning, probably was, who knows, but it's just this kind of institution through which these powerful families move. But the thing is, I think that things change with time. Can I say beyond the shadow of a doubt that like the Masons who laid the cornerstone of this or that other building 
would have ever had the intention of like, let's say a wealthy group of friends coming in and kind of hijacking the lodge. And I mean, because social and cultural mores or mores, they've changed so much. The people in the 1700s, they believed that they were living in like a, a sort of like new world, like a Christian enlightenment and things like that. And education was going to solve all the problems and turn the you know, the brute civilization into a paradise of gentlemen and ladies, and all the while like, ignoring the problem of poverty and the destitute conditions. I mean, things were horrible beyond belief in major cities like New York and the Five Points and things like that. Charles Dickens famously like had some quote, of, like it was the most disgusting display of filth and squalor you'd ever see. You know, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but, and then it just kind of gets handed down and generational wealth changes. It, the expression, the use of that money will change. And I'm not arguing a point. I guess I'm just waxing philosophical, kind of thinking out loud about how these atrocities come about. Because I think one of the big mistakes everybody makes is that they think that was the plan from the start. I think that's the issue. And it's not realistic. I mean, what even in our short lifetimes for, has ever turned out that way? It's like, it's that famous saying, man plans and God laughs. It's like you create something and then it just gets mis misappropriated. Or even if you create something that that is is kind of paltry or base and it gets turned into this, it gets amplified over the centuries. But it's really interesting to think about the societal changes that produce the people that are now in power. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of what I focused on in some of my cursory research with Skull and Bones in Yale is more ornamentation than function in, a, in many ways. And I wonder if this esoteric garb or this esoteric motif that's sort of flaunted throughout these various pieces of architecture and the structure of the way things are done in these different institutions, Yale and their various segments, I think that's what's more of the, I guess, prerogative for certain conspiracy researchers who draw connections to Skull and Bones and things like funding the Nazis during World War II, maybe even fomenting things like the Civil War or Vietnam War, on and on, right? So obviously we're kind of taking the, I don't know, the lighter approach, but I think from that, we find things like, well, this Saturn 9 square, which again, that's death, right? So here's another well, well, here's the thing. That's the thing. There has to be some nuance in your approach. That it's a very that is, and admittedly, I held that belief for a long time, but an initiated approach to Saturn is not the hand that comes to take you to bring you to death, but it's the hand that that takes the pressure off of you so that you can be alive in the spiritual again. It's, it's like Saturn is scary from this side of the veil, but it's really like Saturn, Saturn is not an evil or like in, in Kabbalistic magic and philosophy, Saturn is on the upright tree. It's like, it's not, Bina is on the upright tree. It's not part of the clipboard. It's it granted. It's not something that everybody's happy with encountering because not just death, right? Saturn is also like hard truth, like wisdom. It's that older elder, that, that village elder that says, look. Just do the right thing. I know it's hard. You're going to have to scrape by, save. Like, it's all that old kind of like, like limitations. You, in order to grow, in order to branch out into the Jupiterian, you have to contract. And again, we're talking about that cycle. 
That's simsum, the expansion cool. and create and contraction. Isn't that like an analogy for the war effort and how that helped shape America and grow the country. I mean, the Browning rifles were created in New Haven. Sikorsky aircrafts were created in Connecticut, not too far from New Haven. And tons of other examples. I mean, the submarine was invented in Connecticut and the U.S. naval stations for submarines were all throughout these various coastal inlets in Connecticut and Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So, yeah, yeah, there's tons of military power that was centered here, especially during the Civil War, but uh, World War II as well. But, yeah, I think Saturn has a bad rap for sure. I wonder the Marshall the Marshall stuff is more Mars, obviously the the weapons of war. What about uh, Oath and Hermes? That's Mercury, right? That's kind of a different aspect, isn't it? Yeah. So those would be essentially cognate with with mind and intellect, artistry, skill of some kind. You could you could lump like 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 a craftsman like Daedalus into the mercurial sphere, but Hermes is a little bit more of a of a divine transcendent aspect of mind being able to traverse the all three realms of creation the upper the middle and the lower and he was one of the only gods that could do that that's why he was the messenger of zeus zeus couldn't go down into hades he had to send hermes because hermes had the caduceus staff and that was what gave him his power mm. to to traverse all three realms so it's it is it's the power really of thought which is almost cognate with the word thought so it's the human, it's in Platonism and Neoplatonism, we would say it's the part of the rational soul that is still connected to the transcendent hypostatic intellect. Wow. Said, man. Yeah. I'm really grateful to run all this by you, Ike. I like your perspective on this. And I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm only yeah. beginning to really analyze the esoteric landscape, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I mean, there are tons of examples where Hermes seems to be invoked or Thoth is being invoked. And how appropriate is that in a university, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. thought intellect right there. But even Yale's symbol uh, has the Urum Thurum from Aaron's belt, the two, the black and the white stone, which were used for divination, right? I mean, that's kind of like Lux at Veritas as well, right? So you have this kind of compounding symbol going on with Yale University where clearly some very deep esoteric ideas were laid within the iconography of the college. Yeah, well, what's interesting too is, so my interest in the occult, at least to this level of depth, you don't have to be like, you don't have to be academically educated to practice this stuff. You don't. You, If anything, it's about learning to first harmonize and balance your mind with your emotions, with also the wellspring of your subconscious. You learn to balance all those things, and but first and foremost, you have to balance your physical life. Okay, so that's basically exterior, or I would say outer door initiation. The inner door is a little different. That Then you're getting into high theurgy. But my interest in this stuff comes because like, since I was a kid, all I, like the only class that I was like riveted by was history. I love history. And the thing is, you don't get this from the postmodern perspective. They whitewash the classics. They give you like, okay, here, go read the symposium, write me six paragraphs on it. We'll talk about it, move on. You know, but in reality, during this time, 
that was the current curriculum for the, this is what they were reading. This is what they were educated on. This is what they based their entire civilization on was Greco, Roman, Egyptian, all this shit. And the thing is, those people only talked about esoteric things. All their symbols were esoteric. All of them were transcendental. Forget about Epicureanism and stuff like that for the time being, because even that had like this philosophical essence. But at the end of the day, it's like the, the dialogues of Plato are mystical documents. We read them as if it's like, like being in a museum. Here, look at this. Look how all this shit is. Crazy, right? But when you read Plato, I mean, 2,500 years after his death, he's the foundation of Western philosophical thought. Alfred North Whitehead, that famous quote from him, all of philosophy, can, all of Western philosophy consists of footnotes to Plato. Like it, so they're culling everything that they had. Also, like at that time, Thomas Taylor in the 1700s, he translated the entire Platonic corpus. And then he went further and he started translating Proclus and Iamblichus, all the Neoplatonists. So it's like the only shit they were reading was this like high philosophical spiritual stuff. And then you had stuff like poetry and literature and all that stuff is very florid. Ralph Waldo Emerson, all that kind of stuff. I mean, they used language differently, right? They used it beautifully. They used it sonorously, poetically to, to try and heighten a sense of beauty in the soul. We don't have any of that. Our architecture is straight fucking lines, grayed out color palettes, no beauty, no harmony. We talk to each other. We swear like a Yankee, like I do. It's like it, there's you, if you talk to people in a with a sense of poetry, they think that something's wrong with you. Like we don't write the same way we do anymore. And so we're we've, we're kind of in love or at least enamored with this. Postmodern dark aesthetic and then look around at us. What do we have? Darkness. Indeed. Ike, you mentioned theurgy and I thought maybe that'd be cool to touch on, like maybe give your kind of overview of for the listeners what like what's your conception of theurgy theurgy is a distinct magical practice concerned with the linking of the of the different aspects of the soul and conjoining them with each other you say magic people typically will to somebody kind of not very educated in this stuff they think of somebody's witchy woman blog and a bunch of crystals maybe some tarot cards okay that is part of the magical community I would say that's closer to the more aesthetic expression of these things, not a value judgment, but it's definitely an observation in 20 years of study and nearly a decade of initiation. And it, that stuff is more concerned with the more aesthetic stuff, the more immediate stuff. When you think of magic that you pull from these mainstream ideas of tarot divination, it's this attempt to gain power over the circumstances of your life. And recreate it in accordance with what you believe to be the highest good. The urge he understands that our human personas cannot make good decisions on their own. Just contribute to more karma. In other words, let's look at life and our karma. Let's look at our past lives. And there, there are these ideas in the Western esoteric tradition. These are not imported wholesale from the Eastern stuff. I say the word reincarnation instead of metempsychosis. Because I guarantee you 90% people know what reincarnation means and they don't know what metempsychosis. Metempsychosis is the Greek, the ancient Greek word for reincarnation. So there is a, there's a philosophy that predates Christianity in the Western tradition of karma, reinc reincarnation, the karmic mechanism of the universe, a science of the soul and the spirit, really. And that is what theurgy is concerned with. 
I want to transcend the constant desire to feel like I'm just mushing paint around. I want this thing. How do I get to some semblance of order, clarity? Let's say if we're using the beauty, how do I make this picture beautiful? Well, typically from an egoic persona-based estimation, which postmodernism, particularly our education system, averse that is the only thing that exists and it dies when you're dead if you go about your life trying to make decisions based on that way like you are going to suffer it's just a consequence of that wheel so theurgy attempts to transcend that suffering much like tenets of buddhism tenets of certain vedic practices anatma that kind of apophatic expression of the soul and g is basically it's taking neoplatonic Neoplatonic philosophy and making it operative, which means I'm now going to use this underlying structure of the cosmological order of the world, and I'm going to attempt to ascend and link myself with the highest part of my spiritual architecture, and then I will follow its lead. Beautiful. And do you think, like, because probably for a lot of people, maybe, I don't know, maybe like in terms of magic and magical traditions and systems and how common associations or common understandings can get misconstrued and whatnot. Maybe even like things with like the golden dawn and the whole history of that. And maybe like, I wonder like guys like Crowley, like what are your thoughts on how he kind of came into the equation and influenced things and maybe some of the confusion that comes along with all that? Well, there's a saying, and I'm sure you both have heard it. The loudest one in the room is the weakest one in the room. So that was pers- that was Crowley's personality. I do not mean to say that he was not he did not possess a species of spiritual understanding and even poetic, not in his poetry, but in his spiritual understanding, a species of genius. But he is probably the best example of why you should also undergo some sort of self-discipline and morality training that tends toward complete equilibrium of this or as close to equilibrium as you can get in the material sphere that is constantly moving, constantly changing and vibrating, but learning how to be that, that still center in the hub of the wheel while everything turns and decays and builds up and reaches its apex and decays and reaches its zenith and then builds up again, you become that center point in that wheel. That's why that training should be undergone first before you attempt magic. Because Crowley was not somebody who was inherently balanced. And part of this was his disillusionment with the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn. He essentially was friends with George Cecil Jones, who by the time Crowley and Alan Bennett, they were both initiates of the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn, the original iteration. They were high-level initiates, at least for the time. I believe they were Zolotter Adeptus Minor. That's the great I'm in now. But they had Crowley, who had yet to be initiated, doing laboratory alchemy. George Cecil Jones was a, an amateur pharmacist. And so they'd go, you could do that back then. You didn't need a license. And they would go into it. He would learn all this crazy ritual stuff. And then finally, Crowley got initiated into the Golden Dawn. And the first, the outer order, you just learn in the Hebrew alphabet and like different shapes and stuff like that. And he was like, what the hell is this? He had such a penchant for excess that the adepts of his temple in London, namely William Butler Yeats, Florence Farr, Annie Horniman, these are people who changed the course of civilization. And they weren't famous and influential before they got into the Golden Dawn. 
they became that after they were in the Golden Dawn. So it's not like this whole secret society of the elite. These were essentially bohemian people who were outcasts. I mean, like being an actor back then, like it was tantamount to being a prostitute. So it wasn't like this glamorous thing. But these were the types of people that changed art at that time. So those higher adepts said, like, we're not going to admit Crowley into the inner order. He doesn't have it. Now, Mathers was the sole head of the order at this point. There had been a schism and he was living in Paris with his wife. So he wasn't even on site. But as a power play, and because Crowley was kind of sucking up to him, talking about Scottish lineage and all this stuff and playing the teacher's pet, Mathers advanced him. He ended up going through the outer order of the Golden Dawn, which should be pursued in no less than three years. No less. The outer, it's alchemical in nature. It's designed to take your psyche apart. Okay. He went, he underwent that process in under a year. And then shortly after, the t- there was a whole thing where he, like, it was just a power struggle. And he was on one side and the adepts there in London were on another. And so uh, he ended up leaving the Golden Dawn, being completely disillusioned with it. Still worked its systems, still pursued his excess, squandered the fortune that was given to him, had moments of, had heights of genius and lows of immediately running to the brothel after maybe like a 12-day meditation session. And then his daughter died. His daughter, I believe her name was Rose. And to me, that's where the shift happens. That's when the book of lies is written and he he goes dark. And he starts essentially incorporating the images of the golden dawn, the symbols, which are the teachings themselves. And that's how these things get passed down for so long. You, the symbols themselves are the teachings. Everything I have to say about them is commentary. They will, depending on the level of saturation, which is time and attention to them, they will awaken things in your subconscious mind. What is the surest way to send the opposite message? It's kind of like what you were talking about before, Mark, like people kind of using these symbols and stuff. There's light occultists and there are dark occultists. And dark occultists make dark use of the light occultists' symbols. It's the same principle with a gun or with a knife. You could either be saving somebody's life or you could be taking it. And the difference is intention and action. And what you will find in dark, destructive, usually malicious currents is that they invert symbols, which means they turn them upside down or left side right. They use them in a way to invert them, meaning this is what this means. And I am invoking the polar opposite. So that's how he utilized the symbols of the Golden Dawn. He changed a lot. He inverted all the processes. And he essentially spoke about this highfalutin kind of equilibrium and finding the higher self. But the life he lived and the things he did to people, he was a horrible abuser. Poor people like Victor Newberg and things like that. He destroyed people. So... The unfortunate thing that we have now is that he is at the forefront of occultism by way of people that were ultimately involved in hedonism at its highest levels. People like, don't get me wrong, man. As a musician, I learned how to play the drums from Led Zeppelin records. But it was Jimmy who put him back in the mainstream. It was Kenneth Anger who put him back in the mainstream. So that's how he came back through rock and roll. Like that's, and you will find that is the case with a lot of people who really gravitate towards Crowley. They love that punk rock kind of counterculture aesthetic, really. But what they're not realizing is like the counterculture is good for you to break out of your shell, but for you to stay there is for you to stay in spiritual adolescence for the rest of your life. 
Damn, this is amazing. I kind of, I have like maybe one more question I want to touch on, but first I'll give you, Mark, if there's anything that you wanted to ask or respond to and yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'll second what Ike just said. That's brilliant. I mean, I've made the mistake of looking into Crowley. I have my own stories. One of the first podcasts I ever did that was like anything worth anything was my first appearance on tinfoil hat. And I basically just made a case for why people shouldn't follow Crowley or just kind of gave a biography of him and maybe showed where to reiterate Ike's point, the guy lost his sense of balance and fell into whether it was dark for just him or everyone around him, he fell into some darkness, but yeah, I mean, I have a couple of Crowley's books and I made a sort of attempt at a certain point in my life to learn about him and some weird things happen. I mean, call me superstitious, but one time I had a book of his, well, not just any book, but the book of the law book of magic, actually, which is book four. He calls it, he has so many books. That's you know, actually a great book. Right. <laughs> well, and I had this book at this cafe and out of sheer coincidence, there was a strange guy who walks in and he didn't order anything. He just sat down and opened up like a pocket sized Bible, put an electric candle, like it's a kind of a little switch on the bottom on the table at the cafe. And he started scribbling in between the lines in the Bible. And I'm sort of wigged out like, whoa, what's going on? I'm reading this book in between making people coffees. So I walk over to him. I'm like, hey, man, you would you like a coffee? Well, you got to order something to sit down. Because to be honest, he could have been homeless. He didn't look all that clean. And that was a problem at that cafe. So I would, and I'll be on top of it. I said, hey, what are you doing? He got mad at me and he said oh i'm gonna buy a coffee so i go back to where i was supposed to be and he comes over to buy a coffee and he says to me do you know who i am he says i'm the reincarnation of alistair crowley and the second son of charles manson and i was like what the hell and i mean i'm paraphrasing because it's been a few years but like to use that name of all people as I have this book out of sight, I, I don't know, maybe he saw me through the window reading it, spying on me or something, but he, it was just so weird that his name was evoked in like this guy's anger, this sort of lunacy as well. And I just kind of was like, all right, man, and made him his coffee. And I thought twice about bringing that book out in public ever again, because of what it could potentially just attract as, I mean, it's a living thing, a book in, in a few ways, but it has a life of its own in some ways. So yeah, it was, that was one of my cautionary tales with Crowley is you never know what you're inviting into your life when you start reading his books. That's so interesting because I have like a similar story where I met like a person at the time where that we were be developing a friendship like right after I read book four. Now book four to me is like the, it's a great book because it's the most lucid book Crowley ever wrote because he didn't write it. He would get high on, on like hashish and cocaine and pace around like this building where he was kind of building this cult, this religion. And his secretary Dick wrote it down. She took, she, she was on the typewriter organizing his thoughts for him while he just kind of spat it out of his mouth, pacing in the room on several drugs. But I did have an experience where I met this person and this 
it kind of brought this very strange darkness into my life. And it was ran, it was very random because this person happened to be into like, like Egyptian magic as well. And that's not the grounds that we met on, but I eventually gave the book. I, I gave the book to them and I never saw them again. And, and that was, it was kind of like the end of our friendship. I was like, here, take this book. And I still, they still have it. So yeah, it was like a really interesting experience because I had never thought about it in that way until I had heard you tell that story right now. Well, yeah, I'm glad you shared that because that kind of adds to the sort of conundrum I was in there with this. And that wasn't the only strange homeless guy. Another homeless guy came in. Well, he wasn't homeless, but he was in a mental institution and had some freedom, I guess. He gave me a book called The Thanatos Syndrome, and I haven't read it, but it definitely has come up synchronistically at times throughout the course of the podcast. So I'm saving that for one day. But yeah, I think books have the ability to do that. That's why I love going to used bookstores. And that's a big way that I find like podcast guests is just through being open to different books and letting them jump out at me. Awesome. All right. One thing I wanted to kind of just last kind of touch on is earlier, Ike, you mentioned the, because you were talking about like the upright tree. And then I think you mentioned the, the quipoth, Quipoth yeah, as well, which is something I kind of have recently become aware of. And I was just curious, maybe if you could speak to the nature of that and a little bit about how the Quipoth and the upright tree relate and things around that nature. Sure. So obviously we're talking about Kabbalah and obviously there's different iterations of Kabbalah. It's been around for a really long time. Some people believe it's been around for longer than we have it on the historical record, which is essentially in the 1300s CE. <clears throat> but there was, there were forms of Hebrew mysticism before then, but essentially it comes down the line to this, this prophet, really this rabbi called Isaac Luria, Isaac Luria. And he essentially channeled information from what he claimed were the souls of dead rabbis before him, dead Kabbalists. And he came to this cosmogonical, like creation of the cosmos, ideation, this kind of, this vision of the cosmos as being generated or emanated from a single unity, projecting its force downward into what would eventually become dense materiality. And it projected itself downward in, into several bowls or spheres, or numbers, however you want to translate the word sephirot. It has <clears throat> numerous kind of applications in Hebrew, the root. So the first creation failed. The downward force was too much, and the bowls shattered. And so the divine light pulls itself back up to its eternal unity and tries again. But the vessels... Uh, the shattered bowls still remain there. And there are little pieces of little sparks of the divine light trapped. So the divine oneness sends its light, its force, its power downward. And the, what's called the divine shefa comes down again a second time. And this time the creation stands. And that gives us the tree of life. The sephirot are the bowls, the vessels that contain the light from the ein sof or the limitless unbreakable light. However, we're now in the densest sphere. We're in the furthest 
possible emanation or emanative permutation from the divine in Malkut, Malkut of Isaiah. And so we are existing, we abut just like right up against the shells, the abode of the dead, the klipot. And there is a tree, an averse tree, which is a, like I said before, an inverted reflection of the upright tree. On the upright tree, whether it's Gebura, Mars, or Bina, Saturn, Netzach, Venus, there is nothing on that tree that is inherently bad. Nothing. People make that mistake because we live in a society that values extremes of one sort or another. They don't understand. They, you can conceptualize the sephirot, which are the essences of, cre of creation, but they don't understand the navitot, the paths, which unite them and balance them in our experience. So, Gebur, Abina, Mars, Saturn, these are not bad things. They're in you. And as long as you learn to balance them, they will, you will transcend them ultimately. But anyway, so we have the tree of life now, and we're in the bottom. Our physical existence is in the lowest sephirah, and we're right up against the klipot. And so they have access to us in a certain way. And this tree is all about, whereas the upright tree is about balance, the averse tree or the tree that descends downward is about imbalance. And each one of those averse sephirot are perversions or imbalances of what of the sephirot on the upright tree. And that basically sums up the idea of the klipot. The only thing is that the Kabbalistic adept, as formulated in, in Lurianic Kabbalah, but really more especially in Hermetic Kabbalah, they ha you have to engage in what's called the tikkun ha'olam, which is basically the, the rectification or the redemption of the sphere of the element, of the, the eons, the ages. And that means rescuing the sparks of the divine light that are trapped in those cliphotic vessels, you have, they have to be extracted. They have to be brought back up to their essential one. And there are various theurgic and magical ways in which this is done, none of which I can talk about. So, <laughs> What a way to end it. And this reminds me, I wonder for you, Mark, you've probably heard this said multiple times, like Tripoli always says, where we exist, he says like the lowest levels of heaven and the highest levels of hell, something along that line. And it just totally reminds me of kind of when Ike's speaking about this relationship and where we're at in relation to everything. That's funny. Well, one thing I wanted to ask Mark is what are you particularly interested in? Do you have, now I know you were talking about some Native American stuff that, that you were studying today, but is there a particular direction that you're more interested in terms of the occult and stuff that we've kind of been hashing over tonight that's like more metaphysical? Are you interested in that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to have you on my podcast to explore that further. And I mean, I, like you, am fascinated with history. So that's really where the itch kind of has been scratched, so to speak, is like looking into my own backyard and figuring out what's going on in Connecticut and New Haven. And eventually I'll expand that outward. I have done a podcast called Esoteric America, where we look at all sorts of different places and I'll have people on who want to talk about their own specific backyard, their niche of research. So you're more than welcome to join me on that show because I see your eyebrows raising up. Yeah. Well, but, that's interesting because uh, I had heard of Esoteric America, actually. Oh. I've, I've seen it a bunch of times, actually. That's cool. 
Right on. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you've seen it then. But uh, yeah, so that kind of sums up, I guess, a lot of my interest. But I mean, that's just recent. I mean, that's kind of developed recently. I've been interested in metaphysics for a while. I mean, I have tons of crystals on my desk. I mean, that's only one, maybe three dimensions of it. But uh, but yeah, I'm totally interested in that. I mean, are you offering to join me on my podcast? Is that what you're leading towards? Uh, No, I just, I'd like to hear, I've, like I said, I had heard of Esoteric America, but I hadn't heard of, my family thinks I'm crazy until Sky had mentioned that he was a guest on it. And so that's when I checked it out. But the thing is like, Podcast hosts, like we're all podcast hosts, and I try to keep mine conversational because I rant. It's basically like Sky's really great because he just lets me off the leash. He's it's almost like playing frisbee. He's like, okay, go get it, <laughs> and and that's great. And I get to kind of express the things that I'm interested in. But sometimes when you're interviewing people a lot, you don't. It's more necessarily about them. So so I'm interested to to know more about you, just as somebody who is like-minded and extremely knowledgeable about the stuff that you're into. So not necessarily anything involving, I would love to have you on my podcast, to be honest with you. So let's do it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, metaphysics is not my expertise, but it's certainly an interest. Yeah. So, but no, I'd be happy to join you on your show and talk to you about whatever you're interested in getting out of me. I mean, I'm not capable of talking about a bunch of stuff beyond what we talked about today. So yeah. Awesome. Beautiful. This was absolutely epic. I'm so grateful and happy to have done this with both of you guys. So just in signing off, maybe Mark, you can go ahead and give your, where people can find you, any of that stuff. And then we can go over to you, Ike. Yeah. My family thinks I'm crazy.com search. My family thinks I'm crazy anywhere that you listen to podcasts or follow us on YouTube, where you can also see the show esoteric America and some of my interviews that are YouTube friendly because I have been struck in for my David Icke interview in the past. That's only available on the podcast platforms. But most of my YouTube or most of my podcast episodes are on YouTube, at least the back catalog. The more recent ones you got to go to the audio platforms for. But yeah, my family thinks I'm crazy.com should lead everybody to wherever they feel fit to consume the show that I put out twice a week. Awesome. And how about for yourself? So really my YouTube channel, that's where the podcast is. Podcast is also on Spotify, but kind of everything's on YouTube, my presentation style stuff. And then there are other links there that'll take you to stuff like my Patreon, my Facebook, and my Instagram. So that's youtube.com forward slash at Arcanum, A-R-C-A-N-V-M. Great. All right. And for myself, Philosophical Minds podcast, check it out. and. Also check out, if you are so inclined, the Etherica podcast. <clears throat> we currently have one, our first episode up on the RSS feed for people to check out. And if it's something that you like and want to hear more of, go check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash Etherica. And with that, thank you all again. And until next time. Thanks. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 